Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? It's November 15th, and you are listening to Waypoint Radio, episode 523. I think it's 23. Yeah. Uh, We have a bit of an unusual show for you here. Uh, First up, we have a conversation with Obsidian's Josh Sawyer and Adam Brinecki, uh, who are the directors on Pentiment and Grounded, respectively. I chatted with them last week about life at the studio under Microsoft and how that has changed approaches and metrics for success. And I also had one of the strangest moments of uh, my career talking to Josh about Pentiment. So stick around for that. Uh, afterwards, uh, Ren and I are going to be talking about Pentiment, which you may have seen getting some rave reviews this week uh, from us included. And then Patrick and I uh, will join Kato for a quick dip into the mailbag. Uh, and that will do it for today's show. But first up, uh, what you're going to hear next is me chatting with Josh Sawyer and Adam Brunecki. So stick around. Today I'm joined by uh, Josh Sawyer, game director on Pentiment. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Uh, and I just realized I made a point. I made a note to myself to ask whether it's uh, Adam Brenneck or Brenecki. <laughs> Adam Brenneki, actually. Okay, Brenneki. Yeah. yeah, there's a neck in Brenneki. <laughs> uh, so you and you are game director on Grounded. Uh, as yes, I'm as the game well. director and producer on Grounded. So first, I. I'm always curious about this. You know, a lot of times on the show, we we talk about, you know, what we've been playing lately, what new games we're into. And I'm curious, as people actively developing games, do you have time to do that? Like, like what is what does the gaming hobby look like for somebody doing it professionally, especially with uh, in an era of like live games or or games where development never quite stops? Yeah, for myself, um, you know, over the past year, there's not a lot of game playing going on. Um, whenever I have any sort of time, I'm usually focused on working on Grounded and trying to make the best game possible. Uh, so since we've released uh, about a month ago now into our 1.0, I've definitely had a lot more free time to start playing more games. Um, I've been checking out a lot of different things um, in my backlog which is getting you know bigger by by the year, right? Yeah. So um, I actually have been playing um, Brotato. Okay. That's something that a lot of uh, us are fans of that game. Um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of a completely different type of game than what we've been doing at Obsidian, but uh, it's it's a lot of fun. But yeah, checking out a lot of indie games. Uh, I've been checking out, uh, going back and playing some survival games. I did play a lot of Valheim, but even just playing, going back and playing some Valheim. Um, so. Yeah, a lot of free time now to check out and get 
inspired by what other people are doing in the industry and working on. Josh, what about you? Yeah, I don't, uh, my game's not out yet. <laughs> so, so I have not been playing very much. Um, I bought immortality, uh, because it's a very narrative heavy game. And a lot of the people I follow on Twitter that I respect as game writers seem to be really, really into it. Also a friend of mine wrote on it. So I feel like I, I really need to check it out, but I haven't really played it yet. Um, you know, I saw that there was uh, the new um, IO Interactive announced uh, Hitman Freelancer, which mm-hmm. looks really cool. So that that made me uh, dig out Hitman 3, and I started going back through that again and goofing around. Um, but actually, because we've been in this big push to get Pentiment done and, and shipped uh, in the evening, I just kind of want to chill out. And so... In October, I'm, I spent a lot of time, most nights I was watching a horror movie. So going through um, Criterion Channel had a ton of great mm-hmm. 80s horror movies, uh, also on HBO and stuff like that. So I was just cruising around and just vegging out watching some stuff that I had watched before and then some some new things. So that was kind of, that's how I've been decompressing uh, from the, the rush to get the game out. That is a uh, that is a great way to spend October. I didn't have a lot of time to do the horror movie uh, mar- marathon thing, despite the fact that Criterion is always tempting me. Like, I have the most fear of missing out with Criterion. I think yep. because <laughs> it's not just that they rotate the collection a lot, but it's stuff that I wouldn't even know to look for. Like the Absolutely. curation is like, oh, here's an awesome movie that came out when you were like three or five, yep. and you never heard of, and the minute it's gone i'm probably going to forget about it until the next time they surface it uh so yeah it kills me every month (laughs) uh so you know turning to game development a little bit and and where things are at for y'all i I am curious uh you know you're, you're both leading projects that are very much post post microsoft acquisition uh projects in a lot of ways and I think I'll be talking about this with, with, with Fergus soon as well. But one of the things that I wanted to ask about is that I know that, you know, time was there were a ton of studios uh, that had a lot of development contracts for major publishers, but it was always a very hard existence for studios like that. And a lot of the studios that existed that did that kind of work in the nineties and early two thousands, uh, don't, don't exist anymore. They, they, they folded up or they were, they were acquired ages ago. Uh, and you know, with, with that, you know, there was, there was always sort of the process of pitching games to studios and trying to find like, if someone could buy into the vision, uh, and I'm curious as we've I'm curious if that's does that come back a little bit in this age of like in an obsidian situation where on the one hand you're under the umbrella of like what you call like a mega publisher, but on the other hand, there's gotta be an internal pitch process, I'm sure. Like it's there's there's still it's it's still always challenging, it, it seems to me, or it seems like it would be challenging to sell people on a quirky, weird passion project. And yet here we are. So I'm curious, like, you talk me through a little bit about, like, maybe the pitch process now that you experience versus, like, other versions of it you've seen uh, in, in other areas and other relationships between the people holding the money uh, and, and yourselves. Yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a different uh, world that we're in now. Um, 
while we're in the Xbox family. Uh, I'm sure Josh and I had different experiences with our pitch process uh, with with Grounded. Uh, it was actually before we, we started before we were acquired by Microsoft. And it was something that we've been wanting to do at the studio for a while, which is make a survival game. And that was something that I, I believe that we already had buy-in from the studio that like survival was a thing that we should be doing. A lot of people at the studio were very excited about exploring that space. So that was a little bit easier of a hurdle to cross with upper management at the mm -hmm. studio um, for Fergus and the, the rest of the upper management to give us the go ahead to start working on a survival game. Uh, the, the world idea for grounded is definitely unusual for us. And that was uh, something that once we started putting together kind of the material and pitch deck for grounded or what it was in the very early days, I think immediately uh, a lot of us saw that so many people were very, very, very excited about this idea. The art team was, you know, just kind of expressing like how much they really wanted to work on something like this because it's so different from what else we worked on in the past with uh, you know our previous games were Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2. So we were just really excited to kind of do something completely different. Um, and this, the excitement level pushed it kind of forward on our side. And uh, once we got acquired, um, we, we had a little, I wouldn't even say it's a pitch thing. It was just kind of informative to, to the Xbox team. We we're just like, hey, uh, we, we talked with Matt Booty and his team. We're like, hey, this is what we're doing. And they're like, cool, keep doing it. Um, so that was, that was pretty much, you know, the relationship. And they were very, very supportive of the idea. And they just wanted to see it grow and, and where we could take it. Um, yeah, I would say that it wasn't quite the same on my end. Um, like Adam said, he, you know, he had a core of people that were already focused on making a survival game and then the world development kind of came a little later. Uh, but I think there was more widespread buy-in. Um, when I, I, I had had an idea for a game like Pentiment. Well, I mean, you can go way back in time, but like the specific type of game, maybe started a little after the end of dead fire where I first started thinking about it. Um, and then around the time Microsoft acquired us, I thought this type of game would be very, very well suited for game pass. Um, just because it's very niche, it's very unusual. And it's the sort of thing where, like you said, like here's a movie from the early eighties that yeah. like, you know, Paul Schrader made cat people and it's crazy. <laughs> you never knew it existed, but now it's here. And if you want to check it out, check it out. And so that sort of mentality is kind of what I went into it with. And I, I always knew it was going to be a very small team. And um, I mean, I kind of just bullied my boss into it. I, I said, Fergus, I want to take this opportunity right when we're acquired to do this project. It's really going to be unusual. It's going to be a very small team. And I want you to just have faith that I'm going to make something that people are going to enjoy and we're not going to break the bank on it. Um, I'm going to keep the scope very focused. And so he said, okay. And then I started working with uh, Hannah Kennedy, who's our art director. She's amazing. And she came up with a fantastic art style. And then we grew the team to about like five people. And the nice thing about the process really is that, um, you know, Xbox was aware that the project existed in a very vague sense, but um, we didn't show anything to them until about after our vertical slice, by which point, you know, the, 
the verbal pitch, which is this is like Night in the Woods plus Name of the Rose, which a lot of people go like, I don't, what do you, come on, man. Like, I don't know what that is. Uh, but when we showed it and then described it, so we showed the game and then we described what it was, it was a much easier sell. So once we showed what we were actually making and then talked about it, um, Xbox was very enthusiastic because we had already executed on the core idea. It wasn't a sort of vague uh, concept. And uh, they were very supportive. Um, so, you know, we've, we've had uh, sort of check-in meetings since then, but at every stage they've been very supportive of it, specifically because it is very niche and unusual and um, it has high appeal to a very enthusiastic audience. So the process is quite different from the old publisher model, uh, but so far it's been different in a positive way. Yeah, I think this is one of the questions I've, I've definitely had about well, I've always been curious about, and I, I've debated this with, you know, people like Patrick and other peers and I've talked to developer friends, but like, it's always been hard to figure out long term what the impact of a thing like Game Pass would be on what it makes possible. Because on the one hand, I I would love to buy into sort of the utopian outcome, which is that it lowers the stakes for people making the decision to give a game a shot right it moves it from the 20 or 40 or 60 or 80 dollar uh you know decision and turns it into a hey i have the subscription i'll check this thing out it seems neat and so on the one hand you know i i like to think that it would lower the 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 barrier to entry for stuff like that and make it easier for yeah like interesting passion projects to uh, find their audience and make it easier for those projects to be greenlit. The other hand, video games are such a, a time intensive thing. You know, there, there is no equivalent to the, the, the Netflix analogy breaks down real fast with video games. Cause Netflix, if I go on a binge or something, I, you know, I watch two or three entire TV series in the course of a, a weekend where I make a lot of poor decisions, but <laughs> Can't really do that with with Game Pass because any of these games you're you're talking about a, a significantly higher commitment. It's the the attention economy, I guess that that we're all in. And I'm curious, like if you're sort of like maybe both your experiences working on games like this, but also as you project forward, like what is your feeling about does both working under Xbox and the existence of this model make it an easier sell for? slightly off the wall or, or screwball pitches uh, or do you think the same forces that, you know, have, have governed how these, these things go over uh, for, for years, are, are they still basically in place just kind of wearing different, different clothes? You know, are they, is it just a different context, but kind of the, the same issues you'd be up against, uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago. I think there are different issues. I mean, like, uh, I, I'm i very skeptical anytime someone proposes, like, any sort of new distribution technology or, or any, any new model of anything. I'm, I'm just skeptical because I, I'm a system designer at heart, and I know there are always trade-offs to everything. Every, every sort of scenario you set up, every sort of mechanism you set up for how to make games, how to distribute games, how to advertise games, there's always going to be trade-offs. Um, so I think that there are... A, it's it's a reframing of things that we already deal with. Like, 
you know, you'll see people complain about Steam, which is obviously very different, but it's digital dis distribution with an ever-growing library. Not just an ever-growing library, but an accelerating library. Like the number of new games that come out on Steam every year grows and grows. On the one hand, that's fantastic because so many people are able to make and distribute their games. And it's easier than ever for an audience to get them if they know they exist. <laughs> so there's like, but that's the trade-off is there are so many games. How do you get that attention? Um, and from my perspective, working as part of an Xbox studio and Xbox having Game Pass, for me, it's easy to sort of pitch something specifically for that platform, uh, but it is a curated platform and there are, are trade-offs that come with that. Um, and that is both, like you said, like in some ways that's good because it pressures people to check things out while they're there and they value that they have access to it. Uh, but it is, is curated, which is the opposite problem where there's only so many titles and, uh, you can only look at so much and only so much can be on there at once. So, um, you know, ultimately I am very glad for game pass, uh, because it does afford opportunities like this. But I think it's totally reasonable to to look at it and say like, yeah, there's there's a trade-off here for both developers and potentially for the uh, the people using it. Yeah, and I, I think for me, like, I don't I don't approach it any differently as a developer and a creator. Um, you know, I, I just, I'm grateful that there's so many people on Game Pass and that will try out the game because the barrier of entry is so low. And to me as a creator, that's amazing. Um, more people enjoying my game, that makes me happy. Um, but as an approach to development or like how I think about what I'm doing or the titles that I would pitch in the future, like I don't think that really changes the equation for me. Um, I think I'll approach it fairly similar to how we did things even you know, 10 years ago. And, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to add to that and say that while, while I agree with Adam, I can say for my own sake, I never would have proposed making Pentiment without Game Pass. Like I literally just wouldn't have done it. I, I just don't think it would have been possible. Because you think it would have been shot down or because you knew you'd be sending people off on the suicide. Yeah. Mission. Like, 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 yeah. I mean, it's, 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 you know, the, the, the old mentality of, of publishers and developers is generally focused on larger teams, larger investment for a higher higher ROI. And that's not really the point in this environment. That's not like why things exist in this ecosystem. Um, so like it would be like at a company of, you know, over 200 people saying, hey, can I take a dozen people? You know, I've been at the company, I'm the studio design director. I've been here for over 15 years. <laughs> let me let me take some of our most experienced developers and work on this thing. Low investment, potentially low, like in a in a traditional model. I just don't think I would have even bothered because no one's going to pick that up. Even if even if my boss were supportive of it, it would have been so incredibly difficult to get a publisher to pick it up. And that that's why this specific environment is the only way in which I really conceive of it being viable. So. I'm curious, just from the standpoint of, um, I don't know, I've always imagined launching a game is just terrifying. Like, to be frank, I just imagine it as just being scary. Like, I get anxious when I hit, like, publish on a trashy little blog article that I've written in, like, 20 minutes. Like, oh, no, how's this going to play? And I still have that moment of, like, Boy, what if I really, what if what if I just really botched this? What if this goes up and it's like, man, you asshole, what, what were you thinking? And... 
you know, with, with games, I mean, it's not just like, you know, the, the pressure is higher. The amount of investment, both time uh, is, is higher. And I'm curious whether like does does the model shift that at all for you where it's like, you know, when I when I was becoming aware of like the industry, I guess, in like the, the 2000s and following it a little more closely, you know, everything was about uh amount of space dedicated at major retailers, right? It was about, you know, what the NPD reports were, were bringing in. So what was the trajectory of these things? So much hinged on initial launch, initial, initial sales, initial orders, et cetera. And I'm curious, does this model you're in right now uh, as being part of Xbox and, and sort of being backstopped by, by game pass, does it, lower the pressure does it does it take some of the fear out of like your experience of your roles your your jobs or again does it just does it just shift uh, maybe a little bit i think uh it does relieve a little bit of the pressure um we used game preview and and early access for grounded so i think that also alleviated some of the pressure to get it right the first time um I think that's a huge win for developers being able to iterate and kind of look at how people are playing your game and being able to adjust and iterate over the design ideas multiple times throughout the year instead of just like once every four years. Um, I think that, you know, is super powerful. Um, and Game Pass did allow us to, you know, because we had early success, because we had so many players on Game Pass, it allowed us to kind of take that time to really develop those features and work with our community with Grounded. Um, and I, I do think it alleviates even just the platform itself does kind of alleviate some of that pressure. But whenever you launch anything, as, as you just said, Rob, like it is, it is a scary feeling. It, it is terrifying whenever you launch something because you have no idea. Um, and I think that's it's always going to be like that. And I think for me, um, you know, simply existing under the ownership, like when we, so Adam and I worked on on Pillars of Eternity and Deadfire together and Pillars, making Pillars itself as a crowdfunded game was in itself sort of an act of desperation that worked out and then it sold well and it reviewed well. And we were so relieved because it helped, it helped keep the company alive um, Deadfire came out and to be frank, like it reviewed well and it did not sell well initially in the long term, it did, but that was devastating. I mean, it was devastating personally because I, I want people to play the game. Um, but also we know that like our companies, you know, like we're, we need to make payroll and like it's expensive and that's, that's a rough thing to go through. <clears throat> and, you know, being part of, uh, you know, cause I've been, I've been, I've worked as part of an independent developer and, and part of under Black Isle Studios at Interplay and now Obsidian under Microsoft. And it it's um, that anxiety, the sort of existential anxiety does tend to kind of go away. Also, the, the greater focus on releasing on a platform where, and I'm not saying it's not relevant because it is relevant, like, but the purchases are not like the thing that you're micro focusing on. Um, for my own sake, making a game that's so different like this, I've completely shifted my thinking for this title versus other ones because it is so unusual, it is so niche. And so my thinking for this title specifically is it's for a small audience that is into the idea of the game. And as long as that audience is into it, even if it's fairly small, it's probably fine. And 
I am especially on Game Pass where I know like people are going to they might download it and they might start playing it for five re- minutes and be like, there's a lot of reading and Latin and I do not like this. And they're gonna, like, stop playing it. That's OK. They didn't buy the game like they don't like it. And oh, oh, well, uh, but that's a very different prospect than asking people to spend 20, 30, 40, 50 dollars on something and then getting furious and disappointed because some part of it is not what they wanted. So um, I will say, you know, like there is always the 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 desire for validation among the audience that you want. We're trying to communicate, right? Like we're trying to share experiences and you want somebody to come to it and be like, you fucking did it. <laughs> like <laughs> you did it. And that's that's for me always going to be the underlying anxiety to to make sure that I communicated what I wanted to communicate. But all the sort of other stuff that is more existential and more financial and that stuff is much lower within the environment of being part of Xbox and being focused on Game Pass. I wonder from the standpoint of, you know, a thing that obviously it's been a issue for a number of years is something that gets discussed now increasingly is just about like working conditions in the industry. And I do know that, you know, I look at um, a lot of stories about uh, like exploitative working environments, like crunch culture, et cetera. Uh, it, you know, it happened, it, it happened in a ton of places and the, the context uh, was, was different in a lot of cases, but, I, but I do know there were also a lot of point, places you could point to where, in some ways, it was, you know, driven by sort of the the publishing culture of the time. It was like this idea of we have to hit hard ship deadlines. If we do not make those, the the world is going to end. And so you're just going to have to throw your body on, on this on this problem and, and, and handle it. Uh, and I am curious, you know, when you're again, when you become a part of an organization like like Microsoft, like, like Xbox and sort of live under this, this broader umbrella. Does that, does that drive, does that solve any issues? Does it, does it take some pressure off there or is it, is it fundamentally a a thing that has to be dealt with on the level of like studio by studio? Does that have to be like an individual culture thing rather than just the the context of uh, the environment you're developing in? I think everything, everything comes from the top down. I mean, ultimately, um, crunch as an issue is something that starts at the top and works down. So if it's a, it can be a problem at the publisher level. It can also be a problem at the studio level. It can also be a problem at the project level. Um, but they're usually because of incompatibilities of planning <laughs> and scheduling. But it can be a problem at any of those levels and, and work its way on down. And it's it becomes increasingly difficult for people below to push back against that and and make it and fix the issue. Um, you know, we're all working in an industry where deadlines are extremely important, and we're constantly and especially now with all these games coming out. Oh my God! Like <laughs> twenty years ago, when you looked at a release schedule around the holidays. Yeah okay, like some games are coming out and some are really high profile and that's always going to be a thing. Recently looking at release schedules, it's a minefield and there's like all this crazy analysis because there are so many games coming out. So there's always going to be interest and pressure related to releases and you're always going to be in conflict with other projects at your studio, other projects across the studios that are sort of like part of your family. And then you're 
always watching out for releasing relative to other big titles, whether they're competitors or not. I mean, Pentiment is, is launching near Pokemon and God of War, and those are huge titles. They're not competitors to Pentiment, but there's, they occupy such a mental space in the environment of people talking about games that you can't ignore that. Um, so, you know, like I think crunch is, is always going to come down to a, a problem with planning and scheduling. And, uh, I don't think that there's a magic bullet. It takes a concerted effort by the publishers and the studio leadership and the team leadership to push back against that and try to find a reasonable way through. Sometimes that means pushing things out. Sometimes that means staffing up. Sometimes that means cutting content and features. Um, but ultimately, uh, you know, it does have to become a mentality of this is, let me be real. You're always going to work a little harder toward the end of the game. Like everyone's going to push and you're probably not going to work perfect 40 hour weeks and you will try as much as you can, but you're almost never going to avoid that. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Uh, we have to do our best to resist that, but we also have to be very, very sensitive to the fact that when you work people over a certain amount of time for a certain duration, they do worse. They are less efficient. They get less done. They make more errors. The quality of their work goes down and it is ultimately bad for everyone to engage in that. Uh, and it's, it's destroying the best, the, the greatest asset that you have, which are, is the labor that makes the games. Um, without them, nothing exists. So it really takes a concerted effort and respect from everyone at the top working down to make sure that that doesn't happen um, or to minimize it as much as you possibly can. And I feel, at least for my part, Adam can speak, obviously, to his experiences on Grounded. On Pentiment, when we asked for more time, we got more time. Um, you know, we explained, yeah, this is going to be tight or, yeah, this is not going to happen. And that was respected and listened to. And, you know, our team, you know, there were, where there were a couple of 50-hour weeks in there, especially toward the end, uh, but it was not, you know, the sort of death marches that we've had in the past. And I'm really grateful for that. Yeah, likewise, uh, you know, to echo Josh's statement, I feel that because we're now in the Xbox family, a lot of the, the pressure of hitting that milestone to get paid is gone um, in our in our new world. And I think that just alleviates so much of the team's pressure to hit those deadlines. Um, just because like before we would have to push extremely hard to hit those milestones just so we could get paid. Um, and now we don't, you know, we don't have that deadline, um, to get paid. And so I, I think that alone helps tremendously. Um, but I, I feel also with in the Xbox family, they give us, the flexibility and the time that we need to make the best games that we can um, with our teams. So I think that's also been a, a huge win for Obsidian and the developers at the studio. Um, but I would say like, I think Obsidian is probably, you know, I've been at Obsidian my entire career. So I started as an intern. I've worked on almost all of our titles in some capacity. And I'd say that's one thing that we're always um, as a, as a studio and as a, uh, you know, our teams, um, we try our best to never have any sort of crunch culture at the studio. Um, I think that's something that we've always been strongly against whenever we kind of see that happening, um, or even get a, a whiff of it. We try to do our best to figure out what's actually going wrong and, and trying to resolve that. And sometimes you can't cause it's not yeah. out of our hands, but now it's, it's, 
we have a lot more uh, room now with with Xbox. I think one other thing I'm I'm curious about, uh, you know, just from I think the other the other angle I think a lot about is you know for a long time there's there's emphasis on crunch but all crunch but also there's been increasingly high profile stories of it turns out like hey the studio put out great games or it seemed like an awesome place but it turns out like uh there was something rotten at the core right i think about like uh mike morheim uh sort of tweeting as stories came out about blizzard feeling like uh that you know i think he said something to the fact that i feel like my my life's work is kind of being undone in in some ways by what's coming out of this and i'm curious like that seems like a harder in some ways like thing to self-police or self-correct for right because it's like Crunch culture, you can, you can sort of say it's like there's not necessarily a bad guy in there, right? You can say it's a it's bad management. You can say it's like the system, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's a bad actor in the room. Uh, and it seems like one of the things that has been sort of a, a recurring story, I would say, in like the the last cycle of uh, like stories about you know bad culture and development is that there are that there are people who are just like in mid-level or senior level uh, that, that like there's not checks on them, that there's not a culture of being able to like confide in people about what's going on or, or how they're being managed. And I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, how do you correct for that? You know, how do you, how do you create a space where it's, you know, not, not just like physically safe to work, but like emotionally safe. I think it's difficult. Um, I think it's actually a lot more difficult now that so much of our communication is virtual. Um, you know, a lot of communication that people have is invisible, which is not good on many levels. Um, it's it's actually kind of makes it difficult to collaborate, but also it, it means that, and we saw this even before we started working remotely, um, where, you know, people would get into arguments and have ongoing problems virtually not in a physical space and people were completely unaware of it. So I think there is at, at a fundamental level, there's, there's the communication issue. Uh, but then I think, you know, it gets to the point of if people don't feel like they're going to actually be listened to and that nothing is actually going to be done, then it discourages everyone from doing anything basically. So I don't know, you know, much like with crunch culture where it must become a mentality that everyone embodies and says, hey, everyone, <laughs> we're not doing this. This is not how we run things. Um, people have to have faith that there is accountability for bad actions and bad actors, and there are consequences for those things, and that when people raise concerns, they are not dismissed or minimized or siloed into nothingness. Um, and that takes a lot of work, um, and it takes a lot of attention from a lot of different people. Um, I think when those things get siloed and hushed up and swept under the rug uh you know it can lead to these situations where and you can you can always you know we can't know what's on in any individual's mind whether they were they really aware or were they not aware or were they turning a blind eye or did they not yeah. really want to believe what was going on and we we can't know that but i think that it's important for us to recognize that we all need to be part of the solution that involves not allowing that to happen and making sure that people are listened to and that there are actual consequences for these things. Um, you know, a very common mentality that I've seen uh, very often is, especially when it's someone in a very senior position, is that the person is simply too valuable. Um, 
No, they're not. <laughs> I've never met a single person, no matter how talented they are in the entire industry, no matter what discipline they work in, that is so talented that they can get away with being abusive. I would rather not work with that person ever again uh, than allow that to happen. And I know that that's a mentality uh, and it's very difficult to overcome uh, because there there is still such a sort of like worshipful attitude towards you know, like the, the big figures mm -hmm. in the industry. But, um, and that, that makes people hes hesitant, hesitant to bring things up, hesitant to, to actually do things substantively about the problem. Um, it's not worth it. <laughs> that's, that's my opinion. Yeah. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I definitely think um, genius is rare, but also it's a huge world with billions of people in it. And there's actually a lot of geniuses out there uh, who can do, can do special things. Uh, and that, can, yeah. and, I, and I do think a lot of times what like that excuse is being used as a cover, right? Where it's like, yes. I don't, it would be challenging to replace this puzzle piece in the organization. I don't want to do it because this person things sure. fit well around them and it would just, it's easier not to have to worry about. It, so I'm going to say they're indispensable and like, they're not, but they're, they're yeah. the uh the the hammer to your nail yeah yeah um so oh i'm always bad at this uh we're gonna take a quick break and then we're gonna discuss uh i want to talk about pentiment more specifically uh when we come back right after the break Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And we're back. Uh, so... Josh, you know, in, in some ways, you know, as we were talking about that, I, I sort of realized we had a sort of natural segue to Pentiment, which I think at least in its opening acts is in some ways a workplace drama, uh, among, <laughs> among other things. Uh, but yeah, so for people, I think we talked a lot about this on this podcast when this was first revealed because I lost my mind, uh, over the early, the early trailers. Uh, this is completely up my alley, but why don't you explain to the people what Pentiment is, uh, what Pentiment looks like, and why you did this? Sure. Um, Pentiment is a narrative adventure game set in 16th century Bavaria, which is part of the Holy Roman Empire. And uh, it looks like a combination of late medieval illuminated manuscripts and early modern woodcuts from the early age of print. Um, and it is focused very much on storytelling and uh, the relationships that your character, Andreas Mahler, who is an artist, uh, has with people in the Abbey where he works and with the people in the community where he lives, the secular community where he lives. And it takes place over 25 years. Um, 
so you can see all the ramifications of the choices you make throughout the course of the story and you can see how the different people in the community live and die and change over time yeah and i was uh so i'm playing it a bit um and it is very very cool I, it's just it's just the it's a charming goddamn game uh thank you so i was playing it all last night with a dog curled up to me she did not like some of the uh audio work where there's some uh -oh. very realistic sounding dogs barking in the distance oh, no. <laughs> uh there's there, there's birds and uh so so the dog after after some fruitless searches around the room to figure out where that where the hell all those noises were coming from uh eventually eventually settled down but yeah it's uh you know, one of the things that that really sort of struck me about it is that, gosh, what what's the way to put this? I think there is a tendency for so many things set in this era to turn into the the Python esque Holy Grail parody of the Middle Ages to play it all for laughs, to play up the superstition, to sort of present the world as yeah, self parodying in in some ways, and I think one of the one of the lines you seem to be walking and it, it, it seems like like a very challenging line to walk is the game is bringing across that in some ways this is a very alien world to us very different rhythms very different structures uh just a very different understanding of the universe uh in in this period but also very relatable that people are still people and like while the context is different these are still reasonable people with like vices and virtues and selfishness and hopes and dreams that we would recognize. They are just shaped by their, their time and circumstances. And I'm curious how you, how you negotiated that because it seems like it'd be so easy to lapse into stereotype, especially because a lot of audiences will kind of want the stereotype, right? Cause this is how yeah. they think about the past. Yeah. Um, I think it's because I, I think that I think that people in the past are basically just like us. I mean, I don't I don't really think there's anything intellectually or physiologically different other than, you know, sort of generational changes in diet and things like that. But but they're they're not extra dumb or extra weird or extra superstitious. They're just people and um it was important to me to to walk that line, that specific line. I, I'm actually glad you said that because uh yesterday I did um an interview alongside one of our consultants who is my advisor in college at Kern. And what he said he was hoping that people took away was specifically that this is a very different world, but also these people are pretty much just like us. Um, so yeah, I think it's important that you treat characters in this setting as again, having, um, I'm sorry, what was your professor's name? Edmund Kern. Okay. Uh, not from Lawrence University in Wisconsin. Yes. Yes. Wait, I'm sorry. We were both taught by him. What? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, dude. I like <laughs> he was one of my he was on my thesis committee uh when I did sorry, are you were Laurentian? Yeah. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Appleton, Wisconsin, Lawrence University. Yes. Holy shit, what class? Uh ninety eight. Okay, yeah. I okay, I came in two thousand uh two. Okay, did you know Winston uh, Black by any chance? I did not. Okay, well, he was also a Laurentian, and he's also dude. A I was wondering why this was <laughs> fucking me up because I was like, dude, this is just like shit Professor Kern would talk about, and I was like, man, this game's really like nailing it because this is like how I. 
Oh my god, I'm losing my mind. Okay, okay, so I'm probably not a reliable narrator because it turns out that your lens is being formed by the same guy where I'm like, wow, Josh has really got this figured <laughs> out. Professor Kern would approve. Yep, yep. So yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know what else to say, fun. except that, yeah, yeah. I, I thought it was important that um, these people, you know, clearly are shaped by their environment and the time that they live in. Um but that they are their own people and they can't be reduced to simple tropes where all religious people behave in a certain way and all peasantry behaves in a certain way and all craftspeople behave in a certain way. Um, they are varied. That's why the cast is so large is to show that variety uh, and nuance in individual people over time. Um, and yeah, I, I want people to, to see the, you know, like when we show time passing, you know, we, we use a wheel that shows the, mm -hmm. the divine office. It's the canonical hours because the timekeeping device other than the sun in the sky are the bells at the Abbey and they play diegetically in the environment. That's because the people are using the church <laughs> and their hours to guide their own lives. Um, their world is shaped by that and that understanding. And so we do really want to communicate the material reality and the physical reality of, of how people live in this time um, while also saying, yes, they're they're just people. They're just humans like us. And some of them are really awful. <laughs> and some of them are really fantastic people. And some of them are funny and some are dumb. And that's just, just like us. Yeah, I was thinking last night about, because I was, I was thinking about, like, as I was playing, I was thinking something, a couple things that the Professor Curran actually did that said that stuck with me. One was that, like, you know, this stuff was real to these people, like these concepts yeah. of like salvation and damnation and like these doctrinal things, these mattered a great deal to yes. these people. And like it is we approach these things, I think, from a, you know, obviously a much more secular age. And it's very easy to be cynical about like, well, you can see that there were also pragmatic political forces that would drive the, the world. Like, I mean, that's the history of the 30 years war, right? It's like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who are doing it purely from religious conviction. There's some people who are opportunistic, but the thing that's really hard to parse is it's actually a lot of people who are both. It, it turns out that their conscience also leads them to a place that politically they see like, this is the moment to make a change that these changes have to be made. And that's a, I think that is a, a, a thing you really have to, mentally travel to from the more secular perspective to, to really fully get it. Cause otherwise it does look irrational. It does look like, why would you care this much? Why would you, who would fight and die for the concept of their soul being at stake over a doc doctrinal point? And it's like, but, but for a lot of people, those were the stakes. Yes. And the other thing that, that sort of, and, and I love this in the, um, I love everything about the presentation in this in in this game. I think the the art is inc it's incredible. It's one of those beautiful games I've played Thank you. Uh, in in ages, and I love that in the in the journal where you've got the you know cast of characters and such. I mean, one of the things that comes through there a lot is like death is never present. Uh, you know, feature of life here that people will get married multiple times. People will bury children uh, in in this world, and. You know, this is the other thing sort of that that Kern said ages ago was he was like, you know, the a lot of people in this period, the concept of you lived in the veil of tears, that like all of this was like on your best day, there's still going to be the grief of mortality yeah. that is that is waiting for you. 
then that ultimately like life is so hard and life is so frequently sad uh, in this period that just mentally it was easier to understand of your place in the universe as this is a temporary transit between, you know, the restoration of your mortal soul and yes. however that's going to be judged. Yeah. And what's funny is, as I play this game, even though I don't think you're like, I don't feel like you're making that, you're hammering that point home. It is, I'm struck by how consistently there is that awareness of and pointing out the way that, you know, in some like characters sort of have two things in view, right? It is, it is the, the mortal and material present and the immortal and spiritual, you know, beyond. Yeah. And those things live side by side in this game in a way I find really compelling. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, you know, one thing that I think people don't, um, appreciate because it is hard. It is kind of hard to wrap your head around, honestly, are things like 30 to 50% infant mortality. That is almost unbearable to imagine. Like, yeah, but that was a reality of life prior to the 19th century. Um, and you know, in some places it was maybe more like 20%, but 20%, I mean, like one out of every five infants dying before they're two years old. Yeah. That is unbelievable. Um, and, and even higher when you go to 12, if you made it to 12, uh, you, you maybe have a pretty decent life given that medicine is not super great at this time, but, um, death is constantly there. I mean, like, um, Piero Camparisi wrote Bread of Dreams, basically arguing that much of Europe was perpetually in a state of borderline starvation all the yeah. time. Um, it's true. Like people, people, even if they weren't dying, they were suffering from malnutrition, starvation, ergotism from eating rotten rye baked into like just this incredible stuff uh, that seems unfathomable to us. But to them, this is life and it doesn't make them it makes them sad. I mean, and there, there's, it's funny because there, there are some theories like, ah, uh, the, the medieval man, you know, doesn't give a shit about their, you know, infants until they're, you know, 13 years old or something. But it's like, no, like they do care for them, but they also, this is just what happened. It was really awful. Uh, but they, they still lived life and they still dreamed. And in the same way that, you know, there is this sense of why is Christianity appealing to these people in a very sincere way other than it being what culturally surrounds them all the time. And it's, um, you know, there's a point in the book hunt, if you've gotten to the book hunt with Sister Illuminata, where she says, like, you know, she repeats the line, like, there's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female in yeah. Christ Jesus. Like, and, you know, Andreas can kind of respond and say, like, well, yeah, maybe in the next life, but not here. And she's like, this isn't the world you should be worried about. <laughs> she's it's, like the thing ahead is the thing that I care about, but she's, she's a nun. She's a very devout nun. So of course that's her focus. Well, and even there, I, I, I love the, the pace and rhythm of life at the, uh, at the monastery is that there's people who like, well, time to go work at the faith factory and they've clocked in and they're going <laughs> to clock in for the, like, yep. I think, uh, God, who's the two bickering, uh, brother, Gee and brother attic, brother, Gee and brother attic. Yeah. Yeah. And attic basically is like, it's gonna be a long 40 years, man. And it's <laughs> like, yeah, that's like for Like if you were someone who just sort of got sent off here, like this is, this is what, this is your lot in life and you weren't bought in. It's a really long, uh, there's worse gigs. Yep. But it is a long haul gig. <laughs> yep. Uh, and then you have people who are genuinely uh, like like fully invested in in what Absolutely. they're doing there. I thought the 
the conversation with Illuminata during the book hunt, uh, two things I loved about it is that, you know, one is she's a very well-read woman uh, and has really thought about the texts that she's she's chatting with you about. Uh, but also just the presentation of stuff like this where they project themselves into the text. I thought it was such a beautiful touch. Uh, Thank you. And this is one of the funny things. I look at this game and I'm like, this seems like a really expensive project to greenlight in some ways because it's all it's all art it's all like it like there's so much art in this game there is so much and (laughs) i don't understand how especially with a small team i don't understand how you're how you're not still in there like (laughs) drawing little expressions on these characters i guess you know it is it is a limited set it's a limited cast but it is uh to me it's like it looks so resource intensive of a particular set of resources. It's funny you should say um, adding expressions because we are still adding expressions for some (laughs) characters um, because that was like sort of the most volume, like highest volume thing. But, um, you know, uh, I like to believe that making games for 20 years has made me fairly scope conscious and pretty smart about how to do things and how not to do things. And we have well over 150 unique characters Um, If you include all their age variations, I think it goes over 200. Um, So there's a huge cast. And, and by the way, like, you know, we've with, with uh, the exception of one contractor, we basically had two artists for the entire project. And much of how we accomplished this was just through planning. It was through discussion and planning and scope. And also one nice thing about making a 2d game like this is that we don't really have the stages of concept that then goes to 3d. The concept is the art (laughs) for the most part. Like we make the concept and then animation breaks it up and then they animate it. But um, for example, many, many, many of the characters share rigs and skeletons. They Mm. might even share body parts. Um, And we planned all that out for maximum efficiency because if we didn't, you're right. Like, if we didn't, if we tried to make everyone unique, like truly unique, completely unique, uh, we'd still be working on the first third of the characters. It's just not uh, realistic. So we're very production oriented. I think everyone is very, I mean, Hannah Kennedy also is very good about throwing up a red flag and saying like, we're not going to get this done. Or like, we have to rescope this. Or we, for example, we had, we have some really art intensive documents in the game. And then we also have a number of text intensive documents in the game. And toward the end of development, when I was like, oh man, you know what? We never really have a view of the Golden Legend, which is a, a big book about saints that uh, Jakob de Veragene wrote. And um, I was like, well, we should. I was like, how about this? It's the text for the entry on St. George, but the art is just the illuminated capital which is just St. George and the dragon. You don't have to do a huge illustration of a saint. So it's mostly text. It's mostly reusing a lot of the parchment and fonts and things that we've used before in a smart way to not, we don't want to make every piece of art an illuminated manuscript that takes that long to make. So um, a lot of this was really about careful planning and scope management as we went. Real quick. I'm, I'm just curious. Does it mean anything when text is being corrected, when characters are talking? Um, like, is that it, meant to indicate like a stumble or somebody like uh, like uh, like hems and haws or something? <laughs> I, I'm curious, like it's because 
I'm, I'm playing this game at a snail's pace in part because I'm like, I just like watching the text appear. Uh, I love when Thank you. You're the one part person. where you meet the printer <laughs> and the, the handwritten script gets wiped away and replaced with uh, badly set typeset uh, print. Like all this, all these gags are great. And so I can't ever just like skip the text because I'm like, I have to see if there's a funny little like goof with the uh, with the writing. Yeah. Um, so the errors are not, you know, like planned. Um, every character has, obviously they have a, a font that they use, which is not unique, but um, semi-unique. And then they all have a different writing rate and error rate. So if a character like Guy and Attic, the two scribes, they have an extremely, extremely low error rate and they write very quickly. Um, so it's very rare that you see mm. errors. A character like Brother Folkbert, um, Brother Folkbert uses um, a peasant script and he's kind of challenged in a lot of ways. And so he, he makes a lot of errors and he doesn't write very quickly. Um, so it is a reflection of kind of their education and their comfort level with writing. And it's also a reflection of how Andreas perceives that character because there are characters where you talk to like the Baron where early in a conversation, Andreas is like, wow, this guy is actually a lot more educated than I thought. And his cursive script is replaced by the same humanist script that Andreas uses. And that reflects Andreas's understanding of him as a, a very educated man. Um, so yeah, all of these things are symbolic, although not necessarily to this very specific level that you might be thinking. Um, yeah, that does remind me of another beautiful thing I, I got it. Cause it reminded me of like, Times are dynamic. It's very easy to think about like the Middle Ages as like, in some ways, the pace of change is very slow. It was different than than life right now. And I know we're running short on time. I, I apologize. Uh, but the there's a bit where Piero looks at Andreas's masterwork that he's that he's working on, and they have that exchange about the depiction of the peasants foraging in November, and. Andreas has that line about this is how we draw November. This is how you depict it. And Piero makes the point, but this is not how November is anymore. And like, you know, there the context is it is now moving out of living memory that like peasants had right of the forest uh, to, to do things like that. And it hasn't been for a long time. And the, the way sort of traditions hang on in vestigial depictions, but like, they go away. They stop being part of part of your experience of life. And I don't know. I was thinking of like things like climate change, but also just broader changes that that we're dealing with about like there have people throughout history, but like in this era as well, people deal with the sense of like there are traditional ways of life and rhythms that are disrupted by outside forces. And it takes a long time to realize that they're gone. Yeah. But yeah, it it's uh, it. Yeah, it's not. Uh, thank you. Um, the, yeah, I think you're right. Again, people tend to think of the Middle Ages as this <laughs> huge stretch of time where things were kind of the same and every, no one knew anything and it sucked. And then like <laughs> the Renaissance and like da, 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 now we're in the Enlightenment and the Industrial yeah. Revolution. Great. Um, but no, like change is still happening. And, um, you know, again, the, 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 the state of peasantry, the status of serfdom in different places and times, um, you know, if, pe if people are aware that the German peasant war existed, they are probably not aware that there were many other peasant uprisings in the preceding century, not only in Germany, but also in France. There was the Jacquerie, which was incredibly bloody and brutal. Um, 
And all of these things were because of rising pressures and changes, things that had been handled a certain way stop being allowed. People stopped being allowed to move to marry. Stop. People uh, started, the inheritance tax became overwhelmingly punitive. Someone would die and a huge amount of their estate would be taken away from the family by the state. Um, right to the woods, right to fishing uh, in public streams, all of this stuff were things that had been held in common and then piece by piece went away. And, you know, I will say that we're presenting Piero as, uh, you know, it's kind of like Cadfell. If you've ever read Cadfell. Oh, Cadfell is, is awesome. He is the most progressive Benedictine monk in the history of, <laughs> of the middle ages. Um, so in some ways, Piero is representative of a far more modern view of art and the creation of art because in reality, yeah, this is November, dude. I'm not paying you to like editorialize, just illustrate it the way that we illustrate it. And you see it repeated. This is how this is illustrated. This is how it was not a time for like Jackson Pollock would be decapitated. Like this, you know, it's not happening. <laughs> so like, <laughs> but um, he is in some ways reflecting a more, much more modern sensibility about the artist being a, a person who is creating a fiction representing truth. Uh, and that is an important thing to Piero even if at the time it's not important to Andreas. And so that's kind of part of Andreas starting to think about like, huh, maybe, maybe I should be a little more introspective about this stuff. Uh, well, I can talk about this all day. I know we got to <laughs> wrap it here. Uh, obviously, um, real quick, by the way, what did you major in? At, history. At history. Okay. I was a classics I, guy. Nice. Yeah. I started, I started, I knew classics majors. Um, actually I used, I used one of my classic major friends from Lawrence who now teaches at Boston Latin school as a resource for translating some of our more complicated stuff. But, um, but yeah, I started as in the conservatory and then I switched okay, over to, Connie. okay. Yeah. I started as a vocal performance major and then I switched over to history. So, yeah. Um, yeah. cause that's the other part is like playing this game. I'm like, Oh shit, should I bring it bust out my, translation stuff because like there's a lot of text where i'm like i think i could read this i think i could, i think i could I, I think i could hack this there there's uh, there is nothing in the game that is bullshit translated yeah. everything is either using a source text or we have translated it into the appropriate language now it might not be medieval latin or it might not be early modern high german uh, but it is German. It is Latin. It's not yeah. lorem ipsum. So I, I actually encourage people when they see that stuff to look at it and try to translate it because it is, we, we did actually write all this stuff out to for scrutiny. So absolutely. Well, that it's, it's a treat, uh, for, for a nerd like myself. Uh, thank you both so much for, uh, the time for talking through all this and, uh, you can play Pentiment. I think it's out this week. Uh, it's out November 15th. Yep. So I think day of actually that this is this is going out possibly. Uh, awesome. It will be uh, it will be available for you to play, uh, and I do highly recommend it. Uh, Josh, Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we're back, and uh, now I'm here with Ren and Kato to talk in a little more detail about Pentiment. Uh, so we already covered what Pentiment is in the previous segment. 
I am curious, uh, Ren, how are, how are you getting on with it? Uh, how are you digging it? I'm really loving it. So uh, I've played through pretty much the entirety of the first chapter, and I really, really love the game so far. Um, I think it is... Listen, everyone, everyone was getting on me for saying it was a I was so year mad about this. I was like, everyone, she's, she's gonna, she's gonna, she's gonna boast everyone, about how everyone, she laid I'm not the boasting. I'm not, I'm not boasting. I am defending myself against <laughs> allegations, against accusations. I am like, I am like my good friend, Andreas Mailer. And I am, I am, and I am coming to my own defense on this, the court of podcasts. Thank you. Thank you very much. It is it is indeed uh, a banner year for for narrative games. And this is this is part of that. This is this is one of the things uh, adorning adorning that banner. Uh, so, yeah, we, we've both been playing a, a fair bit. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty deep into the game. And, and what I will say, we're going to avoid spoilers here because this game has some pretty major uh, shifts that happen over the course of it, both tonal, but also like just one of the things that emerges is this is a game told over a like longer stretch of years uh, than you might first first guess at. So uh, there's some there's some major jumps that happen uh, a bit later that kind of recontextualize what's what's happening in the game. But even in the even the opening like couple hours, I think you you get a taste of what this is really about, which is, you know, it is a small town murder mystery and a very, very good one. Uh, in, in my view, it, it, the 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 line this game walks is that I don't think it ever loses any of its like good sense of humor. Uh, it's it's sort of endearing portraits of the various characters who in, inhabit the town of of Tossing, uh, be, being little Andreas Mahler and 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 wandering around and chatting people up like that remains delightful. I think what kind of caught me by surprise, though, is that, hey, this this is not like a cutesy comedy murder mystery, no. like bad stuff is going down in this in this mystery, but also in this world. And so it's I think it's very easy to look at this game and fully expect this is going to be a cute, whimsical, historical comedy adventure. And it's fully just not that. Yeah, I mean, like you can this game's tone is fascinating because you can press a button at virtually any point in time and look at the illuminations in this in this storybook framing device. And you can be like, oh, hey, look, there's a little rabbit guy. I love this little rabbit guy. He's a friend. <laughs> I, he's a companion. Am I trying times? And at the same time, the game will be consistently confronting you not only with like dark material, but like deeply engaging with the questions of its setting um, and and constantly uh, pushing its characters into difficult positions and highlighting the ways in which they interact with institutions. This is I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, the setting in particular, because this is one of the one of the things I really admire about this game is that. It does not shrink away from the complexities of this era. Mm-hmm. And, and and both both from the standpoint of it doesn't condescend to the era. It doesn't be like, uh, you know, the medievals, they just, you know, they just loved uh, bad hygiene and, uh, you know, inquisitions. <laughs> that's just they, they just that's just what they lived for. Uh, it, it totally, especially as the game goes on, it totally sees that this is a really dynamic period in history. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot of 
new new ideas and new new things afoot in the world, even though there's also a lot of deeply rooted traditions. And it gets at both those things. But the thing it doesn't do is it, it does not just use history as like a cool themed backdrop no. for the game. Like I think, you know, the like the way you see Assassin's Creed increasingly handle it, which which is that we are just like we're going to make this conform pretty closely to modern sensibilities. You know, Mm -hmm. this is just a history like theme park, but we're not going to be tied to any of the history in, in many like meaningful ways. Whereas this is deeply informed by the history, but also is consistently a pains to point out that there are going to be people at any point who are not in conformity with the dominant trends. There's always going to be, uh, subculture is an opposition that tends to get flattened out of the historical record. Right. And I think that is like one of the real strengths of this game's understanding of its setting is that I think that plenty of other games and other like not even just games, plenty of pieces of media that engage with historical eras like this are really satisfied to either do, you know, the the Assassin's Creed route or completely restrict themselves to institutions as they are understood by the people who used to run them and 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 who wrote those histories and that virtually every primary character in this game has some compromised relationship to like extant social systems is is really engaging and like your ability to solve the first murder is dependent on your ability to navigate um, not only like understand, but like navigate these social systems and play people off of each other in the correct way. Well, this is one of the things about, um, you know, revisionist history is one of the most abused terms there is, right? Because revisionist history is often used as a pejorative where it's like there was real history and then a bunch of, you know, woke feminists came along and did revisionist history. And that's obviously not what it is, right? Like revisionist history has always been later generations of historians going back and finding that there were things left out of the historical record or new understandings change our understanding of the historical record, meaning it needs to be amended. Uh, but also just increasingly trends in historiography itself that, you know, have trended away from uh, great man history and and portraits of, you know, the great and the good and try to dig into more things like people who existed on the margins or common people uh, throughout these eras. And I think this is one of the one of the things that really uh, is a strength of this game is that it it draws from that tradition of examining what is happening in the world that doesn't get written down in the major church histories or the major like histories of, of Royals of the time. And what, so you um, get this. Yeah. So I was just, what, what, uh, what time period is it actually set in? Like, do they it's give it a specific, the, uh, they do year? it's the day and date, uh, but they give you so, but you're going to move through the years, but it starts, I think in like 1518, okay, uh, yeah. something like that, but it is, it all is all 16th century Bavaria, the town of tossing, uh, and Bavaria. it has, yeah. And as a, and, and so that makes it an interesting place too, where it's like proximate enough right. to places like Italy uh, and such that it is aware of sort of the forerunners of the enlightenment that are happening there, the Renaissance that are happening there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also just isolated enough where it is still like thoroughly medieval there. 
mm-hmm. as well. Like there, there's still a lot of like, uh, not just, beyond just the feudalism. There's still almost like the the waning, uh, the waning eras of like church militant. Uh, you know, the, the triumph of the Catholic Church uh, as like the, the true like unifying institution of uh, of Europe. And so, like, in fact, I even thought the game was going to be more heavy handed about this because like literally one of the first characters you meet is like, so, Andres, what do you think of Martin Luther's thoughts? <laughs> and you might you might think like, oh, it's going to be one of those games. Right. Where like everyone is just like, man, I you heard heard if you heard what Martin Luther's been saying, he has some really interesting ideas about the church in Europe, and that's that's not what it is. It's, that's kind of a misdirect mm. uh, because all this history is going to be like sweeping through the background, but it's not what the game is about necessarily. Right. And I think the thing that's worth noting though is that the game is interested in the questions around it, even if it won't like, even if it's not going to go to Andreas and be like, "What do you think about Martin Luther, player player character?" It will put Andreas in situations where you have to stake a claim on your relationship to particular social systems. So this is, uh, so the thing that happened in the interview that, I, that I've alluded to, um, because it was on my mind, even before, like while I was playing this game, I kept returning to stuff I'd read in my own course work around this period. And the thing that came out in, my conversation with Josh is that it turns out he and I had the same professor. Uh, <laughs> like my old uh, like history professor is a consultant on this game, which I did not oh know. Oh my God. And so like, there was so much in this game where I was, it was I was being reminded of stuff that I came across in uh, a really terrific course, uh, you know, called violence in medieval and modern Europe, uh, which is, what it says on the tin, but it's also talking about like state sanctioned violence, the role mm-hmm. of violence mm-hmm. in communities of faith and, and stuff like that. And it was taught by taught by Ed Kern, but like some of the really uh, and he, he was a great professor. And one of the things that he did was we had that mix of, you know, we, we read some of the major sources, obviously, but also part of what he was doing in that course was also giving you a taste of here's what being a great like here's what doing history would mean if this were where you're calling and so we did like some primary source stuff it was translated obviously so mm-hmm. it's not like a true primary source but one of the things that i kept thinking of as i was playing this was um and this this stuck with me when, when i came across it in that course was uh the inquisition kept really meticulous records in places mm. there's 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 there are inquisitions that occurred where you basically have tons of bureaucratic work product of the the inquisitors investigations discuss like what they what they were investigating who they spoke with and one of the things that um really stuck with me they were they're they're trying to root out heresy and i want to say it was like southern germany uh maybe it was like uh southern france but it wasn't like the, there were some of the big heresies around that era, but what they were really looking at were heretical, like peasant beliefs. And there mm-hmm. was this one, there's this one interrogation record that you find uh, that, I, that I found that was, um, it was a midwife who was explaining how she came to, like she came to realize uh, that there's no such thing as like a soul, uh, that the, the, the people don't have souls that leave their body or whatever. And in this, this interview, the inquisitor had with her, you know, the reason she'd come to this is because her whole life she'd been talking about 
you know, the breath of life and the, the soul departing. Um, and so she's attending a sick child who unfortunately like died during the night, but she watches closely as the, as the kid expired and nothing happened. And she has this moment just sitting there in, you know, in the sick house, realize like, and just has this moment of, it's all just matter. <laughs> it's yeah. just like, there's no, there's no soul, nothing left. The child didn't change. The child's just dead. And so she's telling the inquisitor who you can see in the interview is trying to find a way out of it. The inquisitor, <laughs> like the, between the lines, you can kind of see the inquisitor has tried to lead her to, well, you know, uh, obviously we don't necessarily talk about the soul as like being an actual, like material, like breath. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more. And this one just dug in and it was like, no, <laughs> That's not like this is just not true. Like I can I can observe it. I I you know checked multiple ways to see if anything came out of that kid or if anything was being released. There was nothing, uh, and so you're all you're all full of it basically. And I don't know what happened to that person, but the thing that stuck with me, um, and Professor Kern sort of you know made this point in that course was that. So yes, on the one hand there's a lot of like really devout faith and belief that like can be strange to us now, but just as likely in some ways is the fact that you still have like really smart rationalism inclined people out there uh, who are not, you know, part of the learned set, but they are just going like, they are not going to take for granted what is put before them. And they're going to interrogate these things. And in this era, those people are enormously in danger. Yeah. You know, this is just this is just a woman applying a bit of like scientific method to to a question she has. And at the end of it, she realized she doesn't believe she doesn't believe in the the metaphysical reality that the, the church is portraying. And, and that that gets her in in some real trouble, it puts her before the Inquisition. But the the thing that the thing that did kind of linger with me is that, yeah, those people always existed, too. You know, the, it's not like the Enlightenment came along and everyone is like, hey, you know, maybe we should <laughs> investigate and reconsider these right. things. It the, like those people existed. Those suspicions existed. They just literally got quashed out and you end up finding records of them in effectively like police records. Right. I mean, this 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 era is specifically just it's very specifically categorized by like you know, all of the like science and rationalism that came out of the Renaissance being curtailed by the pressure of the church, which is how you end up getting to the enlightenment. But like, you know, Galileo is fucking murdered, like yeah. killed during this time. Like this is exactly when we're finding the edges of these new ideas that are coming through and being like, Oh, but it's all like, none of this is heresy yet. Cause this is just, we're just explaining how God's world works, but we're not, fucking with anything that god said you know it's just like we're we're understanding god's beautiful creation more um and skip you know i appreciate god's beautiful creation but but the orbit of the spheres um and that's a i feel like a lot of times um things set during during or around this time tend to focus more on like oh look at these look at all the creators that made amazing like jumps Forward, and it's interesting to hear that this is focused more on uh, like further down the ladder, like, like lay people and like the people that history often passes over when uh, described in the like great, you know, great man theory of history. 
uh, one thing I like about the, the the story you tell, Rob, is is the Inquisitor attempting to lead the interrogated woman away from trying to do everything in his power to be like, listen, I'm trying to give you an out here. And that like, this is particularly at the reaches of empire, right? At the edges of empire where it's like, fuck me, I don't want to do this. This is just a paycheck. Like I'm trying to give you an out. And that kind of, that particular relationship to power, I think is, is really threaded throughout Pentiment um, in ways that I appreciate. Yeah, I mean, there's, gosh, like, to that point, there's there's the type of people who fully believe this is how the world should be and kind of exalt in that power. Mm-hmm. And yes, then there's people who are, like, closer to the realities on the ground who kind of are trying to find the compromises between here's how it's supposed to be and here's how it is. And, like, a lot of what we're going to have to do, a lot, a lot of what... You know, the world kind of runs on these compromises, right? Mm-hmm. Where, you know, we're just not going to dig this deeply into it. There's, uh, you know, a character you meet uh, in in the woods in, in this game sort of indicates to you that, hey, uh, you know, there might be something going on between one of the nuns and the monks. And uh, they, they're both basically the cooks for uh, for, for for the abbey. And, you know, what you there. So they're like, basically, they're you know, they're secretly, uh, you know, partners. But the thing that you realize is that actually tons of people are on the secret and everyone has kind of agreed. Right. As long as we don't acknowledge it, we don't have to deal <laughs> with it. Nobody wants to hurt these people. So right. we're just going to, like, let it slide. Uh, and those sorts of compromises are everywhere. You know, I think, you know, Ren, you met um. So early in the game, you know, you have a couple conversations with the nuns who work in the library and like, God, I just loved, I loved everything about this. Cause you have the, you have uh Zidana who's like the flirtatious, uh, like novice nun, uh, who really wants to hook up with Andreas, but you know, the, obviously like, you know, she kind of she's kind of pressed into this work. A lot of, a lot of people are people, a lot of people who end up in monasteries and, and uh, abbeys are kind of cast there for whatever reason. But when you meet Illuminata, what's interesting is there you have like one of the most learned characters in the game and also one of the most devout and they live side by side. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's sophisticated and well-read, but also none of that has like altered her commitment to like church doctrine, which uh, like unfolds. And I think a great conversation you have about the book she reads. See, it's, it's church doctrine, but not church politics and like social, social like stations um, and institutions. Like that is, that is the other cool part of that conversation is that like Illuminata, for example, is extremely well-learned uh, and fundamentally critical of women's role in society and understands how that role is created like through legal processes and and has acknowledged that the position she holds at the and I think this is part of her faith, right? Is that the position she holds at this um, at this monastery is what gives her a little bit of, of of freedom to move, right? And I think that like she addresses that directly um, and is expressed through her character in ways that are like again, I think this is an excellently written game. 
that written and also just like the way they play around with illustration and form like there's a bit where as you're talking about books the characters are projected into the pages of the books and there's one thing uh she's having you like get books that people checked off in the library and not given back and one of them is the aeneid and she asks like so what did you think of the aeneid and i think you can say you can give a number of responses but when the conversation turns back to her they're both projected into the pages and Andreas is projected into the page of uh, Aeneas sailing away. And Illuminata uh, is projected onto the page of uh, like Dido weeping on the shore. And she just unfolds. She, she talks about like. It is a great work, but it's also a, a great work for men. Uh, and she gets into the notion of like how these old narratives define and then reproduce these definitions of like, where do men and women stand in relation to each other? Um, and she does see how that relates to the lot of her and her sisters in, in their lives. She, she draws these connections uh, and it's, it's all handled really, really well. I think it, it could have been a kind of annoying uh, after school special moment of like, Hey, we see that the middle ages were problematic it never comes across that way in this game, though. Never girl bossy. Like, I, like Illuminata never comes off as, like, girl boss energy. Um, no, and there are characters later you meet who have aspirations to, like, live independent lives as, like, tradespeople and, and such. But the thing that they're very clear about is that, actually, legally, this is basically impossible for a mm-hmm. woman. Uh, that you can, you know, this is not a, uh, Disney movie where it's like, just, you know, follow your dreams and girl boss your way into why didn't women in history just stand up and say, I think that's silly (laughs) and work whatever jobs they want and lead whatever lives they wanted. (laughs) And here you sort of see time and again, the sheer number of structural obstacles, uh, placed before women, uh, to have any sort of independence in this world and it doesn't even like the society doesn't even need to be uh, and tossing fundamentally isn't like a society that like hates women but all its structures are misogynist right and like the only the only women who have some uh you know like some agency are those who somehow manage to inherit from husbands but even there that's a really contested thing that comes up where uh you know there's there's a character who the argument is that women can't even inherit uh and so the land she and her family have worked for for you know generations uh is, is forfeit and this emerges as a real bone of contention in the in the story um yeah it's the the other part of this though is it's not just a tour through history it also is a pretty good whodunit because there is a there is a character uh you you meet who is clearly marked for death uh let let us say you so basically in the early stages of the game you meet this dude uh baron lorenz and everyone in town for varying reasons, appears to have it in for him. Like, this is the most murder she wrote thing of like, <laughs> shit heel walks to the town and everyone's like, I'm gonna get you. 
and lo and behold, the next day they done been got. Uh, and then the question is, is who did it? But, you know, all so much of this ends up touching on the history of the town, the, the history of, of people here. And a really menacing thing in all this is it appears that a lot of this was being stirred up by someone who was leaving really unusually illustrated, like unusually scripted notes uh, like, like Andreas who knows from, uh, from, from scripts, mm-hmm. he knows this is an unusual hand. Mm-hmm. He can't figure out anyone in the Abbey who, who would be capable of doing it. And they're all notes of like two various people who have a reason to kill Lorenz. They're all notes being like, remember what he did. He's going to mm-hmm. be here at this time. Do what needs I- to be done. I wanted to be able to pull those out and look at the fucking handwriting so bad because there's a lot of handwriting in this game. And and I oh, I wanted to look at it so bad. Oh, I wanted to look at it so bad. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's this wrinkle because as you the, the way the game. For the most part, like Night of the Woods, you're going to be able to run around and talk to everybody at every sort of stage of the game. The, the game is divided up into portions of the day in the book of hours, and you can go and talk to everyone. But there are some conversations, some activities you will do that will consume the rest of like this this chapter. And you can't do all of them. That's kind of the choice you have to make uh, as as you investigate is what leads do you follow? Who do you end up spending? Like, for instance, every day you have to eat twice a day. Who do you eat those meals with? Uh, those meals will have conversations associated with them that give you useful information. But there's like, you know, probably 10 people you could go have lunch or dinner with. And you can only choose from two each day. So how are you going to allocate that time? That's probably the the, the biggest constraint on this uh, that keeps it from just being a... a a pure like visual novel thing where you're running around and I know visual novels use this mechanic too, but like it's, it's it not from being a thing where you just go and talk to liver, literally everybody and get all the narrative out. Uh, you are still up against the fact that you do not have enough time to do a comprehensive enough investigation. And sort of the, the inkling I started to get early in that case was you've got a bunch of people who have reasons to kill the Baron and none of them feel right. No, like you have so many people are implicated and none of them feel like the right person. It's all completely off or it's just like I you have to make a decision at the end. And I made a decision at the end of that trial. And I know that there are other explanations for the person who I implicated. And and I recognize that was that person a motherfucker. Yes, they were. They were a motherfucker. (laughs) Ren, I I have typed in the chat, but I have not sent. Yeah. Who you implicated? Uh, who I implicated? Who you I'm implicated. curious. Please, please type We're back. Do this I'm just so curious. Okay. Yep. You got it. Three, two, one, go. Yeah. Yeah. It's that mother. It wasn't that motherfucker, but it was that motherfucker. Well, so there's this great. So there's this great device this game has, which is, and I. This is when I knew I was lost to the game. It opens on a great credit sequence, great music, and all. Uh, but it opens on Andreas dreams and his dreams take him to Prester John's court. And it, so he goes to this like medieval idol 
where Prester John, uh, like one of the like mythical kingdoms of Christianity, is holding court. Saint Grobian uh, is is there. Socrates is there, and they're all like, "Hey, what's up, Andreas? How's it going?" <laughs> God, uh, I wish Diogenes was there. Oh, I wish Diogenes was there so bad. <laughs> it's it's so good as like he he so he shoots the shit with like these the, these figures. But yes, right before it's time to make a ruling about like who who are you going to tell the uh, investigators about? Uh, they all kind of give you the sign that like, listen, this is a capital crime. Like whoever they think did this is is going to be put to death. So and 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 Saint uh, Grobian sort of pu- puts in there. He's saying, he's saying, he's like, what Prester John means is don't tell them about anyone you don't mind. Uh, tell them about people you don't mind seeing get executed. Right. And that was kind of the ruling of like, of the fingers I can point, I would feel the least bad about pointing it at this person. Right. <laughs> and then I felt kind of bad when it all <laughs> unfolded because like, dude didn't deserve what he got. Dude I did hate. not deserve that. I'll I'll be honest. That executioner, not great. I think he's kind of oh, no. mid at his oh, job, no. <laughs> at best. Well, I just think you got to imagine that shit happened all the time, right? You got like it seems like a hard job, oh, yeah. like sawing so through someone's head in one stroke. So yeah, it's like so. That's the thing. This game gets gnarly. Uh, yeah. there, there's there's some stuff there. Where you're like, well, that was that was significantly Ooh. worse than I hoped. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like this is also uh, tying back to what I was talking about earlier with with the Inquisitor who does not want to be doing this shit. Is that like at, at certain points your player character is that guy where it's like I don't give me a reason not to implicate you in this crime. I am fucking begging you. I am I am coming to you hat in hands. Give me a reason not to implicate you here. And like some people do. Some people do. And you're like, great, cool. This is completely improbable. Thank you for giving me something completely improbable. As opposed to others where it's just like, man, you didn't you didn't give me anything to work with. Well, and that's this other thing is like Andreas is a as a character is kind of an interesting place because you know he's a educated man. He had university schooling and now he is a uh journeyman artist and so he's like he's not nobility mm-hmm. but he's also so much more privileged and worldly than anyone in the town uh and so he ends up being this guy who like you know he's like the venn diagram of this world he's one of the rare people at the very center of it where he can sort of move between the secular world uh and, and the the cloistered world he can he can speak with nobles as if they are equals uh, and so he's kind of a perfect foil for this for this first investigation. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I think that the, the the Disco Elysium comparisons are going to really be going wild with this game. But I think that Andreas as a character is is in a similar position uh, to that character in that, like, one, you you build them as you go. Right. Andreas yeah. is, is, is their background is 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 built as you go throughout the game. At point one. The other thing is that, like, at least in my playthrough, Andreas at his best is just kind of a weird guy who listens to people. And that, like, that characterization is really engaging. And, like, the, the ways you can play Andreas are really engaging. Yeah. Um, in a way that I, I I appreciate a lot. Like you do, it does not feel like you are playing a player insert character. It feels like you are playing a guy with experiences and ways of approaching situations. 
um, in a way that I really appreciate. So did you build him as, cause I just kind of leaned in the idea that he was, <clears throat> uh, an itinerant artist. I, I went with the Italy background, uh, for him and I went with the, like, so what's his whole deal? Why hasn't he like started his life in a lot of ways? And I went with the good time, Charlie, uh, background where it's all like wine, women and song. So, so my Andreas was kind of a insubstantial fuckboy type character. Uh, in some <laughs> my, my Andreas is a dude who went to university, got got big into books, and is like is is doing illumination because he really loves literature and because he really loves narrative. But he studied a bunch of weird shit at college. Uh, he studied medicine and occult rituals. Oh, so um, I went with uh, law and nature. Yeah, so I've got this dude who just studied medicine and occult rituals, and like, which puts him. His background is like someone who loves books puts him closer to the nobility and to uh, the folks working at the monastery. But his actual schooling puts him closer to the people working on the ground. He he knows how to treat people who are wounded and also knows how to navigate like local pagan traditions um, and how to discuss those with people in ways that keep everyone safe. And that was like one of my favorite things about my character, uh, and about the characterization is that like a lot of the occult background is not as much about, um, do you know what this is? Cause there's, there's a lot of time, but to like a knowledge check. Um, yeah. and those times are, are, are clear. The times that really get me are the times where it's like, do you know how to talk about this? Yeah. Do you know how to have a conversation about these, um, like, pagan beliefs or however you want to frame them, where at the end of it, you don't get someone killed or you yourself do not get killed or implicated? Um, because that is a constant threat. Because, again, like we've mentioned, this game takes place at the edge of empire uh, and at the edge of in a in a deeply compromised place in in every regard right and so it is both under much less and much higher scrutiny than anywhere else it is the, it is the kind of place where no one is looking at it but the second they do it all falls apart yeah uh, for for every single person there and trying to interact with it in such a way that you do not bring that hell down upon every single person there or you limit who that hell is brought down upon is one of my favorite parts of the game. Yeah. And I, and I will say like, uh, the later chapters is like, hell cannot be kept at bay, uh, right. for, for long. So like, uh, as, as you go further into the game, like some of the stakes you are trying to manage and massage in the first case, uh, those are now just the table stakes for right. later sections. Um, but yeah, I think so. You know, we, we might end up doing a, a spoiler chat about this at some point if you end up sticking with it. I don't know, Kato, maybe we've sold you on the game or, or maybe oh, not. Absolutely. But I was I was excited for it before this, but this even, you know, really pushes it much harder as well until I need to play this. <laughs> I'm thrilled. Like, I'm thrilled. It's, it seems to be getting rave reviews everywhere. This is one of the things I was a little bit concerned uh, before this came out that like. It might be. So niche in its appeal uh that it might not like cross a ton of uh right. boundaries but it seems like just about everybody is having similar reactions uh and i think that just speaks to how well it is making this like rapid fire uh historical deep dive mm -hmm. uh make you feel like 
almost like it makes you feel like you're a native to this world uh, mm-hmm. rather than uh, in, uh, you know, rather than going on a tour of it. Uh, so and I think that's a that's a real achievement because I, I think there's a version of this that is like, you know, bent under the weight of exposition and mm-hmm. context. And I'm consistently astonished by how lightly it wears all of that. Yeah, I mean, like, it, for me, the the device that it uses really elegantly is the fact that not everyone knows everything. And, that, like, sometimes characters will tell you things, other times you tell characters things. And, like, the the placement in the world is is really strong. Um, and, and the ways in which, like, people tell you about what they know. Not everyone knows everything. And you can build a okay picture of what is happening in the moment through those, like, couple dozen conversations. Um and that picture looks very different depending on who you talk to and when. All right. I think that will uh, wrap it up for Pentiment for the moment. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. And uh, then Patrick got finished with his other stuff sooner than I thought. So I think we might just roll right into Mailbag, all four of us. Uh, so let's hang loose for a moment and uh, we'll be back after this. <laughs> And we're back uh, for a quick dip into the mailbag. Uh, but first, Patrick, I have just one question for you. Oh, Are you it. back from the bear game? <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was a noon game, Rob. And I, I actually remarked to my buddy I was with at the game, uh, you know, it was the fourth quarter and it was only two o'clock in the afternoon. I was like, buddy, we might make it back in time for the four o'clock games. Uh, but then <laughs> that last quarter was very slow and one look at the cabs to get back home they were $220 so we did not do that we got a beer waited for the surge price well that's what happens it's like you know everyone's trying to leave get out of the city like the vast majority of the people going to stadium games in the city of Chicago are not they don't live in the city so it's just like a you know it is a literal surge to get back to the suburbs (laughs) at at the end of it so we went and got a couple beers and waited till it was 60 bucks um yeah i was i was deeply envious you saw a, a really good game oh uh, rob see one of the we will do this at, i think we should yeah. we need to do a check-in after this little mailbag i know this is turning into like a four-part podcast but uh uh between <laughs> <laughs> talking about a game cutting to an interview cutting back to mailbag and then cutting finally back to rob will head off into the great havens <laughs> yes yes this is the, this episode the ending of lord of lord of the rings but uh yeah, I have some thoughts, Rob. We'll, we'll, we'll save them till after the mailbag. All right. Sounds good. Uh, so our first question comes from Henry. Dear Waypoint Waypointers, we love to talk about games that we love to remake or get a sequel. But what game would you erase? Maybe because you hated it. Maybe because of its oh. effects on game design, monetization, or society. Maybe you just found the discourse around it annoying. Maybe it just took too much of your time. Just for the hell of it, I'd erase Rogue so that maybe the genre could have a better name. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Uh, I think the implication that that would have still happened without Rogue. Something something else. What would it be? <laughs> what else was like that? What, what else? What was the first Rogue like after so, Rogue? So that's the problem. I think you just end up with a different, like, annoying blank like. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> You know I what? Feel like we actually got lucky with Rogue. I feel like that's, <laughs> yeah. that's like it rolls off the tongue as opposed yes. to like a, a two word title. <laughs> like I don't want I Metroidvania bad name. It's catchy, but it's like a it's a it's a bad name, uh, and I don't want I don't want another one of those. Net hack like. 
<laughs> See, awful. Uh, this is, I, I, you know, I'll, I will spend more brain power thinking of one that means something to me, but I'm going to do this for other people. I am going to save the world from Sonic the Hedgehog. Just mm. gone. The, the Sonic fuck? cycle broken. Jesus um, Christ. Platformers were already established. There'd be another fast one. Oh you got to go fast. You will find it. Maybe Bubsy would have been it. But the Sonic franchise <laughs> has hurt so many people for so long. And for what? Not so worth it. The first half the first half of it was great. Their 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 mistake was leaving two deep lanes. Eh. Um, Patrick, I went to I approached this question from a similar angle as I want to save the people I love. Mm-hmm. Um and Kato, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. But I am obliterating Dota 2 from the record. Um, Abso- absolutely, you know what? Guess what I was gonna pick. Wait, so <laughs> specifically Dota 2 or yes. the mod? No, no Dota I, 2. It has to be Dota okay. 2. The mod could have existed. Maybe it became something else. Maybe Heroes of New Earth fucking blows up instead Heroes of Dota of Storm, 2 coming through. <laughs> Heroes of the Storm could have had a second chance. I it yeah, would give sure. Heroes of the Storm a second chance. If we still get um, to Pokemon Unite, I'm fine. <laughs> and, and you would, because League would still be popular. Exactly. League would still be exactly. popular. Like, like, but this is my this is my choice for other people. I I like Patrick. I'm trying to dwell on something <laughs> that I would I would pick for me. Mm-hmm. God, yeah. Please give me those hours back. You do, Kato, you would have just found another way to waste it. <laughs> no, you're not wrong. That's the issue. Is it, was, it was free, and it, I could play it on my white MacBook Pro that I had, my first laptop computer. That's why I played so much Dota 2. It, that, all those hours would have just ended up back in TF2, in Team Fortress 2. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was right? going to say, I would have spent I, more time over there. <laughs> I have a few I have a few options here because like one I've been on record thinking that I've always argued that Rome Total War both turned the Total War franchise into like a mega blockbuster franchise but also taught some dangerous lessons as far as like it does not matter if the game works because if the presentation is cool enough people will forgive literally anything and I think like Rome Total War comes out and then you have just year after year of dodgy releases from creative assembly uh, because it's like everything's going into tech and then does the strategy game hold up? And it doesn't really matter for a ton of people into playing those games. And I was sort of felt that was, uh, uh, you know, a really double-edged sword, but honestly, if we're talking about double-edged swords here, like I have two thoughts and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious what you make of this. Um, I am torn between whether I would guide my axe towards GTA 3 or Far Cry 3. Far Cry 3 is more targeted. Far Cry 3 is like that is the one that You don't break any you don't break any design momentum by axing Far Cry 3. With GTA 3 you do. That's the thing. So so I do think so Far Cry 3 I think does set i think it does alter trajectory for a lot of ubisoft games around it i think like it's easy to forget assassin's creed had like like done some table setting but i feel like far cry 3 has always sort of felt like at that point you had an assassin's creed model 
and then some jet fuel from Far Cry 3 of just like collectibles and crafting and all these little activity areas. And so in some ways, I'm like, maybe if you kill it, you can alter that trajectory. But Patrick, you sort of put your finger on it. GTA 3, I think, is like ground zero for the entire open world like game design uh movement a game like that something like like that like that was inevitable it's where the technology was pushing but you just splinter the arcs of design in so many different ways without that as a the template that it's working off of um not to mention that's responsible for the ascent of rockstar as a studio which is itself uh buoys lots of things that like take two as a publisher not really a publisher absent gta three like that is what turns them into mega status bioshock probably doesn't exist unless gta 3 is like like there's a lot of interesting repercussions that come directly out of gta (laughs) oh i don't want to i don't want to kill bioshock explode 2k okay i checked (laughs) something yeah i checked something rob yeah you would i think i think if you axe gta 3 you save the far cry series too yes yes because yeah like because if because if GTA three does not exist, then well, mm, but you still get Far Cry two. That's that's the that's the that's the difficult question. Yeah, but that one's weird, isn't it? It is weird, but it's also like Crisis made hu- like Crytek made huge nonlinear shooters, but they did not make open world shooters. Hmm. Far Cry two is open world. It's very weird. Uh, yeah, I, I I think if you don't have GTA over there, I do think maybe Far Cry's trajectory is different. I also think, you know, in some ways, what I'm also trying to get specifically is both I'm trying to intercept a bit of like open world design that I find kind of boring and un- uninspiring. Uh, but also specifically, if you can if you can prevent Far Cry uh, GTA three, you can prevent far, uh, GTA four from happening which is a game i love but also feels like the thing that was like what if we just made big epic movie pastiches uh you know a central selling point for both for rockstar and then again that becomes the hallmark of a lot of open world games of Mm. we are going to rip off movies and put them you know put their major scenes uh inter intercut with tons of pretty low stakes meaningless you know, wanders across a big open world. So, yeah, that's so that's that's my those are my suggestions. And it does seem I think I think y'all persuaded me. I think GTA three. I don't know what happens if you remove GTA three from the equation, but I do think it is a profoundly different world. And I would be interested in seeing that world. (laughs) Any others that like kind of did you have one you wanted to kill? I was it was Dota two. It was Dota two. Oh yeah, okay. yeah. He, he just, conc- Ren, just concurring. Yeah, Ren just happened to pick the one. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, hi, Waypoint crew. Lots of people have a comfort show, movie, or game. Something you turn on after a long work week, snuggled on the couch in fuzzy socks. A piece of media that always brings a smile to your face and sets your soul at ease. For some, it's endless rewatches of 90s shows or Lord of the Rings or starting new towns in Animal Crossing. For me, the movie I curl up with, uh, curl up in a blanket to watch with ice cream is The Blair Witch Project. 
I love it. Hell yeah. Unapologetic. Plot Some twist. You complain it's not a real horror and nothing happens. Mm-hmm. I'm enamored with the found footage and mockumentary genre of horror. I've heavily considered starting a YouTube channel just to make video essays on every bit of Blair Witch Media. Emily, follow your bliss. <laughs> Please. You, I, I will be the how, first to subscribe. Up writing, you want to talk about, about this? You. Yeah, you want to talk about the sci-fi faux documentary they did as part of the PR campaign for the Blair Witch Project? I'm here for it. That was a great piece of media. Please analyze it for me. I'll watch it. Emily would like to know your most unusual or eyebrow-raising comfort media. Hmm. So I have a lot of comfort. Like, I am someone who draws a tremendous, like, one of the most soothing ways for me to like deal with just occasional like you know when when there's like a runaway bit of anxiety or something or just like worried about something and 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 stewing over it like there's a lot of things I pull from because it's one of the most like soothing things that I can do is like watch a a, a thing I love. There's so I will I, I will say this um probably over the years the highest the, the thing I've fallen back on the absolute most is probably the movie Sneakers. Mm. Uh I find it impossible to not enjoy and just get good vibes from sneakers. Uh, it's a, you know, awesome cast, great script, some, some great scenes. And I, and I think this is the key. I'm not sure I fall in love with, with sneakers nearly as much. If Ben Kingsley does not have this unforgettable turn uh, in, you know, at the end of the second act and the beginning of the third, if Ben Kingsley doesn't show up in that movie and lend it some real gravitas. I'm not sure I love it as much. I think it ends up more of a Ghostbusters type movie that I kind of grow out of. But because Ben Kingsley is there, uh, it, random shot of Ghostbusters. No, I mean, I love I love Ghostbusters, but you know what I mean. It's like it's a <laughs> yeah, movie I loved yeah, yeah, as a yeah. kid. I don't think I'm ever going sure. to love Ghostbusters that way again. Whereas sneakers, I kind of do. Mm. But in keeping that keeping with that vibe, I think another weird like comfort thing, and this is maybe unsurprising now that I do a fucking podcast devoted to uh Tony Gilroy's Andor, but Michael Clayton has become a movie that I'm like constantly returning to. Uh where I'm just like, you know what I'm in the mood mood to watch right now? Michael Clayton. Uh and I will just end up putting that on uh you know because of yeah the 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 whole vibe, some of the issues it addresses. I think it is it is a movie kind of about feeling lost and overwhelmed uh, in the world, but comes to some beautiful conclusions through that. So that's that's a movie I return to a, a ton for that reason. Uh, I don't. These don't exist. Uh, for, like they did when I was younger, but uh, like so much of my life is just barely keeping up with the things that I want to watch. That it's very rare to turn back. But the thing that is the closest equivalent is. Uh, is football, frankly. Like, what I like about football is it actually breaks the cycle on the very thing I'm talking about here, in which I just like sitting around with friends and watching even just the worst possible game. And you can you can extrapolate this out to, to sports more broadly, but of the people I talk to the most in my life, football is, the like, the one that everyone is the most knowledgeable and passionate about and thus can spur the most amount of discussion. But in the same way that I like sitting around – uh like when I was younger, sat around with, you know, drinking beer, talking to people for hours. I don't do that anymore. But now the version of that is like sitting around while my kids are running around with other kids watching football. And when that goes away, uh, like it bums me out because I like that all day Sunday sitting around nursing some uh, IPA and just like casually shooting the shit with like 
the people in my life. And when that goes away, it bumps me out. So like that, that is frequently my comfort food and gets me out of the, uh, because of my life, I need to do everything the most efficiently and always look forward. And like sports is what gets me to slow down a little bit. I feel like I'm in a similar position as far as like, I don't return to things very often. Um, but if there's one thing I do ever rewatch, there's like a couple of movies. Uh, one of them is, uh, the, what was it? 2005, 2006 version of Pride and Prejudice. Uh, mm-hmm. the Keira Knightley one. Yeah. And, um, can't believe we never did that. <laughs> there was so much to contrast with the anyways the and um the uh, uh and the big lebowski which is um, a movie that the first time i watched did not find very funny big same but has only gotten funnier every single time i watched it since then um i watch that at least once a year that's like the one thing that i will there's an annual rewatch at some point. I feel Lebowski life. is so memed on and it is so oversold to people who see it the first time that yeah. like, it's really hard to see what's actually there because your first viewing experience is just like kind of uh, almost like warped by like everything that surrounds the, the movie. Half the time you're being shown it by somebody who can quote, who's going to quote like all of it alongside the movie. Yeah. <laughs> like you got a 50, 50 shot at that basically. <laughs> Yeah, and now I can quote most of that movie. Well, and they, I was I was really unsold because I was seeing people like who were not fully getting it, and like I, you know, they they, they sort of like the the big applause lines for that, but like the thing that fully won me over that I'm like, this is a stranger and more magical movie than like people even like really tell you mm-hmm. is the big Busby Berkeley dance number. Uh, the dream sequence <laughs> the dream with sequence, the, yeah. the bowling the bowling alley theme dream sequence and once that happened I was just like okay this movie just like left this mortal plane <laughs> and is now doing something completely different yeah uh, and I that's that's sort of where I became uh, an absolute fan it's it's one of the top Coen brothers honestly they, they make all their shit is so amazing honestly but it's definitely one of my favorites as we'll get one to of the on ones the Coen brothers keeper, yeah yeah which we're gonna be <laughs> piloting uh, on the next episode of my turn yeah I think I think that for me, there's I don't really return to full pieces of media. I return to moments uh, with with consistency. So like if I'm having a really bad day, just like bad depression, I will rewatch the Insulindian Phasmid scene from Disco Elysium uh, or I will like watch uh, the first major duel in Mobile Suit Gundam Iron-Blooded Orphans or there's there's dozens of scenes like this where it's like, okay, I don't really return to the whole piece of media, but I can return to the moment that makes it the thing for me uh, and remind myself that like things can make me feel that way. Um, alternatively, I do have a, I do have a comfort genre, which is um, 3DS JRPGs from three years before whatever the current year is. And this is getting this is getting problematic yeah. as as the, as time marches onwards. <laughs> it's like I can't. It's real hard to find a 3ds JRPG that came out three years ago when I'm having a, a severe depression, uh, like week long depression. Uh, so occasionally I do have to break my rule of it having come out three years ago um, or it being uh, relegated to the 3ds. Um, the last one I did was I believe it was 
Persona 5... No, the last one I did was Stranger of Sword City, which is a dungeon crawler. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one before that was Persona 5 Royal. All right, I think I've just got one last question for us today. It's been a, a, you know, with all these segments, it's been a bit of a long show. Uh, and I think there might still be some sports talk uh, happening in the margins. But I think <laughs> I think uh, Phil from D.C. deserves a response on this. What would your bird call sound like? Now, I want you to think about this, but I actually know what mine sounds like. Like, cause I, cause I do like, I, I'm for, I, I, I know exactly like what noise I would make if I were a bird and it's like, you know, the sound that you can't describe it. You have to do it. Yeah. Oh, well, obviously it's like, (laughs) is that a bird? (laughs) Amazing. Beautiful. Is that a bird? (laughs) Are we sure that's a bird? <laughs> that sounded like a mechanical bull revving up. Like a little, a little more walrusy than nope. It's Ooh. so the thing is, uh, like nesting, uh, like I think boobies and albatrosses make sounds like this, but it's a it's a sound you encounter a lot on like uh I, I, for whatever reason I it's an it's a sound I associate a lot with like not necessarily waterfowl, but like water adjacent birds mm. who like make their nests there. But like, that is like, that's me. When I, when I hear that, when I hear that sort of like pleased, all is right with the world surveying of their little nest and their, that, you know, all their, all their little treasures. Uh, I'm like, that's me. That's, that's the noise I would make. I think you all have heard mine. Uh, oh. Hmm. Pardon? I, I, said, I think you all have heard mine. It's just whenever I hiccup real loud. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah, that's it. Like, yeah. that's, the, that's the noise. Damn. Bird me would That's make. the easy one. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I think I, 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 must, I must closely associate myself with a... It wouldn't be like a bird noise. It's just a woodpecker. Yep. Like, the hair. Like, yeah, I totally think that would be... Oh, wow. I found the albatrosses. I think I saw a thing where woodpeckers, like their tongue is so long, it wraps their brain up in like padding so that they can do the woodpecker thing. Because otherwise what? they'd be inflicting like massive sorry, brain trauma sorry, on themselves. Sorry, 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 sorry. You're suggesting to me. You're, you're coming to me on a Monday morning. Oh, God. And you are saying to me that woodpeckers oh. wrap their tongues. It is a Monday. Oh, no. Uh, I just started my This week. is not regrettable information. Ugh. This is cool information. <laughs> but it is it is information that I think you should be aware of. I mean, look, I, it goes I, all again, the way I said I'm mask. all about hyper-efficiency. Yeah. I got spare space on my brain. Put it in. <laughs> Ren, you, really Ren, you, you strike me as someone who's thought about who they're like, who they'd be as a bird. I mean, it's right in my name. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, it's, it is across every single one of my platform. I went, I went by the name Raven for many, many years for good reason. I love those fucking birds and, so and much. And tell me what sound a raven they're, makes. They're so smart. One, they are they yell a lot, but they're so fucking smart. Those birds are stupid smart. I don't care about the yell. The yell isn't it. It's not. What's the yell? How do you do the yell? Ah, I don't. I don't ah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Perfect. Nice. Nice. Uh-huh. 
that um, nailed it's it. not that it's when ravens are talking to like other ravens and they're trying to keep it on the down low they do like a little coup to each other where they're like just like tiny little bird noises to each other and that's when they're like trying to have a fucking conversation but my favorite fact about ravens is that when they find a dead raven uh they will start like yelling like hey eric's dead and then all the other ravens come over and they determine if the area is still safe to be in uh based on what killed the raven so if they can find like a particular like co- they basically do murder investigations to be like incredible do we have to go the raven safety to, board like, convenes right they're like we might have to fuck out of here the other thing is that they they can talk which rules uh, yeah. and i do have a uh, i do have a favorite video of a raven talking um, i just i just posted one of so mine that i saw recently loki the raven on tiktok going hop 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 yeah they'll chat with you they're friends <laughs> if you teach them to tell you to shut up they will when they get annoyed um they're incredibly incredibly smart birds uh and have like a really really wide vocal range i celebrate the entire corvid family like honestly yeah. just fantastic yeah. fantastic birds good answer worthy worthy rate worthy worthy bird worthy <laughs> worthy bird call uh that will do it for today's waypoint radio uh, you can check out we published on waypoint.vice.com. By the time you're listening to this, my review of Pentiment uh, should should be up. Uh, if you want more from Waypoint, you can follow us on Twitter at Waypoint, Facebook, YouTube, Waypoint Vice. You can follow me on Twitter at Rob Zachney. Uh, Patrick, where can people follow you? Oh, I'm sorry. At Patrick Lovick. I muted myself when I was calling. <laughs> Kato. At A underscore Kato underscore appears. Ren. You can find me on Twitter at Ren or Raven. Uh, thanks to Waypoint Plus, we've been able to have a bunch of fun streams lately. Uh, Kato and I are continuing our magical journey through Mo- Motorsports Monday. Uh, we're playing a bit more Motorsport Manager. Um, we seem to have... A, we, <laughs> people have theorized that there's a pattern where we're only capable of controlling one car <sighs> like remotely competently, but that does appear to be true. Uh, and now the wheel has turned... Santa, and it's our, Santa had returned to the fold. It should be a happy day. And yet, and, <laughs> and yet, yet, we're moving on uh, to to our to our rich boy. Oh. Uh, he's going to lead us to victory. Uh, Patrick is, of course, also uh, continuing to play Cyberpunk, uh, and Natalie and I are continuing our playthrough of System Shock. Uh, for our Waypoint Plus listeners, uh, we have. I think this week we are going to be doing the Hail Caesar, my turn. Uh, Manhunting was postponed, so that's going to be next week where we're listening to uh, Miami Vice, or we're talking about Miami Vice. But uh, this week it's going to be Hail Caesar, uh, the Coen Brothers comedy of 1950s Hollywood. Uh, If that sounds good or you just want more Waypoint, you can go to waypointplus.com and subscribe. Not only do you get access to our premium feed, but you're also helping support Waypoint and everything else we do here. And if you want to show uh, not just support, but zeal, go to waypointgeneralstore.com and buy some of our fine Waypoint merch, like our sixth anniversary shirt uh, or poster. Our theme music is by Bowen. The track is Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Learn more at waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. For now, we're calling time on this Tuesday. We will talk to you again on Friday. Until then, fuck capitalism. Go home.
And we're back. Uh, Patrick, (laughs) it's it's sports segment time. You have the floor. All right, Rob. Okay, I just, so you you watched the game? Uh, Highlights only. Okay. Um, It was an interesting game. It it has resulted in a, the fan base being in a weird place. Um, I couldn't have been happier with the outcome. So to be clear, the Bears appear to be dominating that game for a minute. And then in the third quarter, they were the first half. No one was doing much of anything. And then to close out the half and in the third quarter, Fields was lighting it up. The defense, which basically doesn't exist, was doing just enough. Uh, there was a point towards the end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth, and it was 24-10 where it's like, OK, like this is just where you run the ball and just try and mitigate mistakes on defense. And you're, you're probably going to get out of here, score 30 points. Everyone goes home, goes home happy. Uh, the. Defense gets screwed on a couple of calls, and because they are such a bad defense, like they don't have room for error. So when you have a call not go your way, and specifically it was a call in which there was an interception that would have stalled out a drive, uh, that you know there's 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 a call that doesn't go their way. They score on the next play, and then not 90 seconds later, Justin Fields throws a pick six, and so it goes from 24-10 to 24-24. Uh, right after that. When most Bears teams, you would lose all hope. Justin, uh, Rob, I got to see it in person. It uh, the to watch the crowd, to listen, to feel the crowd realize that the scramble is going to the house. It reminds me of like the Hester days of yeah. just anything can happen, and you're not surprised, but you're delighted when it's a home run, and to like. Just to, people were hugging. I was hugging people. Everyone was just so happy. And this happens immediately after a disastrous play, which is itself an encouraging sign and somebody that can shake off an obviously shitty play and just move on and do something special uh, the next. Um, Cairo Santos is probably the most consistent player on this team in the last five years. Uh, misses just a fluke extra point. As soon as it happened, I turned to my buddy and was like, we're losing by a point like that. Like that. that is just what is going to happen. Um, and they did, and the Bears were in a position where they could have, they had two minutes on the clock, three timeouts, and, you know, not much, not much happened. That was, that was the, that was the end of the game. Um, I was happy. I came out of that, like, buzzing. The stadium was buzzing. All everyone wanted to talk about were the Justin Fields highlights. And then, you know, I didn't watch much of football on Sunday because I was at the stadium, and then it was a pain in the butt to get home. By the time I got home, I was tired and pretty much went to bed and wake up kind of catching up. Like what's the mood? People were like fields, fields. And it seems like there's now a split. And the reason I bring this up is because we are in an interesting moment in the season. And I think anyone that has uh, watched a bad team that you have some excitement for has experienced this where uh, like, would I have been upset if the bears won? No. Am I happier as in terms of the big picture, more strategically that they have a slightly better draft pick, they call it a moral victory. You lost, but you won in a different way. We've experienced a number of these recently. Um, I was happy with that. I've been okay if Justin Fields got that big win. I think that would have been development in a different way. But there seems to be like some real crisis. Among, like you have media members, even ones that Rob, you and I quite like, uh, like on the Hogan Johns podcast, I'm like, well, they just don't know how to close out a game. And it's like, buddy, that's not what I've seen when I've been watching this team this season. I see a Herculean effort by a singularly superstar level player putting an entire team on his back and being failed constantly. And I would like that guy to get a W, but I'm also not going to 
knock him when he doesn't put together the two minute drive because his wide receivers can't get any separation. Yeah, I think, um, you know, losing seasons are tough to endure uh, for for sure. I, I do think it has been so clear that. You know, teams generally don't tank from the standpoint of they're actively trying to not win on the field, but like organizations tank. Mm-hmm. And once the Bears, you know, basically auctioned off their defense for picks and parts, that was a clear indicator that the objective, the 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 understanding of the Bears front office is that the wins they could buy this season are too expensive for what they will cost in terms of like opportunities down the road. And so I do tend to like look at games like yesterday pretty philosophically, right? Of just like, look, they they like the Bears, the, that team is out there still trying to win. And it, it does suck to see them like, you know, try so hard and and, and come up, come short like that. Uh, but at the same time, like organizationally, this team is designed to. They put up the white flag offense. Yeah. All the, all the things they were talking about, you know, all the criticism the bears took, you know, somewhat rightly of, Hey, you've got this young quarterback, like put something mm-hmm. around him. And the bears basically said, prove it, you know, prove, prove that there should be things around you, which, you know, can f- feel cruel for a second year player who got dumped into an awful situation. Um, but then, uh, everything like this what has he done what has he done he's proved it right like well, i mean like the other thing is like he's a player that maybe the bears can't break that's the other wild thing here is like we have seen we have seen the bears break players break quarterbacks mm-hmm. in particular fields i don't think anybody would be would have been surprised if he just like lost all his confidence in game in the face of what he's been dealing with. Uh, And I was really worried that was what the story of the season was going to be is that as part of the rebuild, they were also basically going to walk away from fields, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at at the end of this. And instead uh, it is clear that no matter what surrounds him, he is going to try and rise to the occasion and has enough talent that he appears to be able to do that. So that does mean like, you know, I remember during the first Packers game uh, where they where they just got demolished earlier this season. I think it was on Sunday night. Collinsworth was saying, like, you have to remember this team the Bears have on the field costs a hundred million dollars less than what the yes. Packers currently have on the field. That is a tremendous amount of money. Like, effectively, the Bears are burning a lot of money uh, to just like close out some some bad contracts, and they have dealt a lot of people away. Uh, to discharge some obligations and get picks. And like next year, it could be a very different team. That's the weird thing. Like I've never had confidence in a Bears front office to like choose good free agent agents or like mm-hmm. draft particularly well, uh, even though I, I know that like Pace had a decent draft record. But you know what I mean? Like, right. I didn't have much confidence in the Bears. They didn't feel like team. it was a plan. Even if, even if you got right. some good players, it never felt like there is a blueprint for what's going forward. There is an obvious roadmap for what is this team going to be in two years. And that's the difference here is maybe that was going to be without fields, but I think now very clearly, like there's not a chance they, they move on from him. Like he is going to be, he's made your team nationally relevant when it has not been like they're scoring 30 points. Like they're talking about him in other games. I was watching the Vikings game and they just had a whole aside talking about fields uh, midway through that game uh, before it got wild at the end. Well, I don't I'm going to get some of this stat wrong, but there was a stat uh, that I saw or heard about this morning that was um, if you were scoring like 200 yards rushing, 
like on X, like over a course of the last, like the games where Fields has really taken off, put it all together, had three, 30 point, roughly 30 point games for like four weeks straight. Uh, teams that accomplish what the Bears are accomplishing on offense are like <laughs> 40 and five. And several of those five losses are from the Bears in the last couple of weeks. And look, what I mean by like, it's interesting as a, a fan that pays too much close attention. I'm thinking of it strategically, whereas, you know, especially when you're in person, you're just emotionally invested in the moment. Now, so are the players, right? That's where, like, when you think about the chemistry and culture of a team where, yes, you have a front office thinking about the long term, wanting to lose to get higher on a draft board, either to pick a player higher or to trade that away and go down and accumulate more picks and more players a little further below. Um, that's important. But, you know, what does a win for Fields as a leader mean? Like, those are all things you're, like juggling. And I don't, the bears didn't throw that game away in the sense that they were like benching players to yeah. arbitrarily make it more difficult. You do that through trades. Um, but I think you're right, Rob, that like part of what is, I think really encouraging is that even though I, f- I feel for him, like he is putting everything out, every ounce of Justin Fields of what he has to offer at the moment is being put on the, like the literal field. But if he was going to get broken, I think it would have already happened. I think the like closest went, was that Washington game. That was the one yes. where I was like, if he's about to be done, it's right now. Um, yes. And he came, he battled back from that. And it started at the beginning, right? Like when he was thrust into playing after Andy Dalton tweaks his knee or whatever it was at, you know, uh, a couple of games early into the Bears season last year. I mean, there's enough distance that I don't feel the despair that I felt watching that Browns game. Oh, yeah. But I mean, the man didn't do it. They had negative yards offense, I think, by the end of that game. Like that that was about as crushing as a way to be introduced to the NFL as you ever will be. That 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 organization put them essentially you you could have looked at that as like, do we how do you crush a player? Yeah. Let's just go do that. Well, and that's and what is, they did. I this is maybe the the sore point that is uh lingering with all this is um where fields is that right now, right now and what that offense is, is doing, it really was malpractice to leave Nagy and Pace in charge for one more year. Because like like, you know, if this if this second year was gonna leap was gonna happen once like somebody had figured him out and started like building systems around him, uh, then we could have blown more things up a year ago yes. and started like arming this, for this team year. this team this team would be like, like a quote unquote in the hunt for the playoffs in a way that you were excited about. Maybe this more year. so. In a, like, it, like in, in a very weak NFC board. Yeah. Yeah. Like, they, they yeah. lost a bunch of games because they couldn't score points at all at the start of the season. They're losing games by three points, one point. You know, like they're losing yeah. um, one score games that it's because their defense can't, can't do jack. And so yeah. I don't know. It, it's, it's such a different place. Last year when we were losing, I wanted them to lose because I wanted the organization to fire. Yeah. The management structure here I want them to lose because I'm thinking five years from now, yeah. And like Justin Fields, you know, defending a Super Bowl title in Hell Arlington yeah. Heights, Illinois, right? The only, like, so the only thing that really bummed me about yesterday's game, though, was uh, honestly, like, we have enough Detroit fans who fo- like follow us and sure. uh, like weigh in on the sports pods that they were like, they're so happy because like we we pre- we projected this as a win. 
Uh, mm-hmm. We didn't mm-hmm. we didn't believe the the lions had it in them uh, at all. We thought they'd get run over. And like, there's a lot of there's a lot of happy lions fans uh, out there. And like, the <laughs> hey, good for you. Is, I, I can't even turn around and be like, well, you know, the Bears really won that game though because they're going to get the better picks. I can't even do that. Like, I was I was saying a week ago, I was like. This is done. Put it down on the books. This is a done. Oh, 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 absolutely. Oh, I was doing that at the game. 24-10. Yeah. I was like, oh, they're going to score. They might score 40 points in this game. I don't know if J- Jared Goff's going to do anything else the rest of the way. Uh, not, not, the, not the case. Not I, the I, case. I'm, I haven't seen the video yet, but I'm almost certain that there's probably more Dan Campbell, big happy tears in the locker room. Yeah, uh, type, I, I was tough. I was not like that far enough down, but like my experiences at Soldier Field in the past are always buying the cheapest possible seats. We are always no. in the nosebleed. Like we're always as far up as we can get to make the math work on, on going. This time was a family friend, some client offered them some tickets and they couldn't go. So I was in the United club, which is like a private entrance that goes into soldier field. And it's aesthetically the places uh, styled after kind of like you were in a, you know, an airport or something like that, but it's heated. Like, I mean, Rob, it was, I was, I was it was actually sort of upsetting to experience what it is like when you've got a little more money and you yep. can this this can be what it's like when you go to see a football game like I wasn't pissing in a trough dude which is most of my experience at Soldier Field I was really shaken by a year when the uh Kings were really bad and I went I, I was like yeah it's just cheap to get like some of the best seats uh in the in the Staples Center I'm just going to go splurge for that and it was like it was like, what if you watched an entire, what if your entire like seating area was basically the inside of a, of like a high end limousine. Yeah. And I was like, this is, this is weird. Yeah, and good. I, I like I, it. I, I, I did like it, but it was, I, I was to my money. I'm, like, I'm so glad my wife didn't come with, because if she knew this was possible, <laughs> like <laughs> I'd have to pay for these tickets. And I don't, I don't want to do that. We're going back to the nosebleeds. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the the other thing I would say, um, the Bills Vikings game was one of the wildest things I've ever seen. Like I only saw the I saw only saw the end of it. I saw uh, 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 Allen throw the like really errant pass in the in the red zone. He did two of those in that game. Yeah, right? like, he did. Like he gave concerning. that game away. He's he's really regressed in terms of like the decisions he's made. But no, the thing that was really wild was one, uh, Kirk Cousins and Justin Jefferson appear to have like. You know, Kirk Cousins is a known quantity, you know, like mm-hmm. his his ceiling is is neither high nor low, et cetera. But he appears to have a connection with Justin Jefferson. Justin Jefferson seems like an amazing wide receiver. He like he was making. Yeah, he, he put in one of those dominant performances I've ever seen. Uh, the entire like game tying driver would have been like the game tying drive mm-hmm. uh, unfolded with him. Basically, like Cousins was going to throw it to him again and again and again and just like these go up and get it type passes could anyone stop and the answer was no like the answer was they they could not it was it was clear the ball was going to him did not matter he was going to haul these things in uh there was one where it basically looked like it was supposed to be a pick it was thrown high over his head he gets one arm up in between the defender's arms as the guy's arms are closed hands are closing on the ball and just one hand as he's falling to the ground rips it from that dude's hands and like tucks it into his chest and completes the catch all in like the what split second before like gravity brings him back down. It was, it was unreal, but the Vikings didn't get in to the end zone on that drive. It's like they did everything, but like 
get into the end zone, tie the game. They try a quarterback sneak. Kirk Cousins comes up uh, like literally inches short. And that's it. That's the game. That's that should be done. And then the Bills get the ball back. And I've never I don't think I've ever seen this happen. It's a fumbled snap that they lose completely cleanly. It just like, yeah, just a fl- bounces a fl- right play. out of Allen's hands behind him into the end zone. And this is key because you can't advance the ball on a fumble. Uh, but if it is a fumble and it's fumbled in the end zone, once a defender gets possession of it, that is a touchdown. Mm-hmm. And that's how the Vikings tie that game. Like literally <laughs> on the like, you know, six inch yard line. Basically, uh, they end up like recovering a fumble for a touchdown uh, and and tying the game, and sending it to overtime. And then, yeah, they they had another decent drive and, and got a field goal. But like the the swings of fortune, like the last I would say the last like three minutes of the fourth quarter in that game. I swear it felt like it took an hour and a good hour to play mm-hmm. with the number of things that be reviewed timeouts, the these drives. It was it was incredible stuff uh, like just a just a ridiculous game. Football is magical. I didn't see as much as I would have liked because uh, there's also a really good F1 race. And it was an F1 race that, man, I'm sitting there. I was like, man, I wish Kato could be watching this. It was it was the most like, hey, do you want to see like motorsports as strategy game and like teams adapting to weird luck of the draw type stuff? It was that race. It was the most motorsport manager ass race uh, that I, I've seen in ages. And so that like it was it, it added up to being a great day of sports. Um, do, you, do you want to hear the most degenerate thing that happened during I do. this whole I love degenerate things. So, uh, you know, when the when the when the tickets were offered, I was going to turn them down because I was in Wisconsin with uh, the person I went with and our kids were up there. It's like, I don't know how I'm going to I found out at like 845. I was like, I don't know how we're going to get out of this house back to our houses, get all the way downtown. So I was going to turn them down. And so my wife turns to me and she goes, no, like, we'll figure it out. We're just we're going to get our shit together. You and your buddy, you're going to the game. And I was like, boy, did I marry well. And so. And she's like, I got good vibes. I got good vibes on this. And so we made it back, like timing up the lift uh, just in time. Like I'm looking at like how long will it take to get picked up versus how long it says like on the GPS to get home. So we can get like right in because we had to get right in the cab to get to slide in to home to get there. Like right as the, like in our lift dropped us off at like 1151. The game starts at noon. So like just like beautiful. Like got in, managed to get a beer right as they're doing the kickoff. But as we're in the cab, I'm like, I'm feeling these good vibes. This $60 cab ride, I don't want to pay for it. How do I do that? Well, let's do a little two-team parlay. $40 uh, on the Bears win, tied to Packers losing, which at the time, that those seemed like reasonable bets, Rob, right? Like, those seemed like, re- that, that seemed like a pretty reasonable bet to make. Oh, man. I pulled it oh, out of man. my, I call it my funny money account. It's PayPal. It's where, like, my eBay sales and, like, like little Twitch money, like, shows up. So it's just, that money doesn't exist. It's, like, doesn't take away from my kid's college fund. That's just, like, dad spending weird, uh, you know, when he wants to do something degenerate like this. Put down that 40. Put down 40 to make 58. And then I, all I did was just lose forty dollars. <laughs> Wait, so that parlay only would have netted fifty eight, right? But it would have covered the majority of the the cab ride. That's all I was. I was only I was looking at the little Sorry, calculator. Hold on, but you put you bet forty. I bet forty. The to payout win would 60. not have been fifty eight dollars. It would have been ninety eight. I hope. Yeah, and so I got the money I put okay. in back. Right, but I mean, like 
the the what I was I making was like, back. If you had to do a, a parlay <laughs> to get eighteen dollars off of forty, I'm like, this is getting pretty tight. <laughs> uh, did, did the Fed adjust book rates? Like what? No, what going no, 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 no. What, yeah, it would have paid out almost a hundred, but it, you know, it, it was it was to cover the. I looked at how much the cab cost, and so I was just I was like, I'll bet as much as gets me over this cab cost, um, and forty dollars was the magic number. But um, so then when the, when the Lions lost, the first thing my bud said to me was like. Oh, so much for your fucking bet. And then and then the Packers also won by, you know, three, you know, like at the very I end am, of that I game in the most seething. excruciating manner possible seething. as a. Yeah. Oh, just the worst. Like, oh, when they had that clip where uh, uh, Rogers is screaming at LaFur for like calls, calling some play that he didn't agree with. And, and you could easily see like, oh, this could be the writing on the wall for all of this. Like, I don't know if you've seen that clip I'll have to, I'll have to find it. But like he is screaming at him on the sidelines during some play. Um, and then they go and win and he's got his, he's jumping around and he's, he's all happy. Fuck him. Yeah. Like, I can't believe Rogers is so bad. I've turned around. I'm like, Hey, you know what? Maybe Mike McCarthy's good. I don't think <laughs> no, that's true, No, but I'm no. like, yeah. Anyway, great day of sports. Great day of sports. Good games. Go bears. Go bears. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.